This is a Fubar Radio podcast. If you need any more information, head to fubarradio.com. Nick Helm and Nathaniel Metcalf's fan club on Fubar Radio. Like, um, uh, I was really calm and I was just thinking uh, it's going to be a bit weird t- today because I'm so calm uh, that I don't write and as soon as I press the button I go oh boy <laughs> um, and it's really instantly very stressful um, but that's good I've got a pen that works and that's fine hello my name is Nick Helm and this is Nathaniel Metcalf. And you are listening to Nick and Nat's Fan, fan Club. Club. First rule of Fan Club is uh, tell your friends about, about Fan Club. Club. And the second rule of Fan Club is uh, please, please tell, tell your, your friends, friends about, about fan, fan Club. Club. Is that a deliberately funny face that you're making when you're grinning like that? Uh, Natalie, the producer, was just uh, uh, making a funny face. We don't normally announce <laughs> our guests, are, do we? But uh, I, I, no, thought I don't think we should start. No, but I thought there'd be a good reason to, because we could say... We've got John Niven on later, who is the author of Kill Your Friends. So we could say, please kill your friends about fan club. Yeah, I mean, no, that's uh, awful. Because so then what if people take it out of context and start doing it? Start now? killing their own friends. <laughs> yeah. Then we wouldn't have any listeners. No, well, no, because our listeners would be killing their friends. You're, yeah, that's true. You're assuming that... Uh, that um, our listeners are large groups of people that are uh, <laughs> hanging out in in public places. Mm. Uh, it's probably you know as I listen to it when I um, what's my favourite what's my favourite podcast what fan club fan club yeah when I listen to it I listen to it alone uh, <laughs> uh, so I can concentrate with the blinds closed. Yeah, <laughs> that's fan club. Keep it light, isn't it? Keep it light, uh, but. Uh, uh, yeah, um, what, what are you writing here? Oh, no. Anyway, so um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, slick, it's slick as fuck. As um, always. As always, it's good. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, so, yeah, well, we're not, we'll, we'll talk about that later when, when he's actually on. See what you've done. You've thrown everything in the I know, I've thrown it out of the kilter by trying to oh. create some excellent content. What have you, um, what have you been up to uh, uh, this week, uh, <laughs> I've been mainly sat indoors waiting for a parcel to turn up next. Oh, yeah. It hasn't turned up. Tell me about this story. Because um, <laughs> I heard it once. It's a pretty exciting story. I felt, but I, it's a very simple story. It's a, it's a tale as old as time. It is. But, um, but uh, what, I just I couldn't get my head around it because you went such a convoluted way of explaining it to me. But So you, this is what I could put together. You uh, had ordered something. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it, it wasn't delivered. Or it was delivered when I was away, so I got a little note saying, oh, we tried to deliver your parcel, and it was, you're away. Okay, but to, but so far in the first telling of this, you hadn't even told me that you'd ordered anything. Oh, yeah, no, I've ordered something. I've ordered something that I believe, well, now now to be DVDs, which I didn't initially know. I just got a letter saying, tried to deliver a parcel, sure. we didn't, they didn't arrive. Because I thought sometimes in the industry, you know, uh, you'll get... Uh, delivered a, a set of DVDs you right. know, so that you can review them or just so that you can see something nice. You know, yeah. for instance, from Arrow Films, uh, but not Arrow Films, they've not sent us anything. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but In theory, if they did. Still be up for it, Arrow, if you're out there listening, because uh, uh, the absolutely amazing set. She's got another sale on in FOP. Uh, yeah, and HMV, I believe. And HMV. Uh, if, where's the HMV? Where's HMV? Bond Street. Oh, yeah, you've got to go all the way down there. Yeah, <laughs> all the way. <laughs> all the way down there. Depends where you live, doesn't it? I'm never going to Bond Street. I'm never going down to Bond Street. <laughs> I'm, always, uh, I'm always a fop man. Cause, um, Keeping it real. Yeah, Covent Garden's on the Piccadilly line, isn't it? Sure. 
one stop nearer than Leicester Square. And <laughs> um, so, right, so, so far, you've ordered some uh, DVDs. Yeah, I've ordered some DVDs. But you don't remember what the DVDs are? I know now. It's a set of the goodies. Oh, fuck me, mate. <laughs> I don't know. On. But you know what? Even I feel like that now. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want them that much. Do you know what? That's, like, I did it on a whim, and you, now I'm like, oh, God. When you work this story into your next show, yeah. right, the goodies is the punchline. <laughs> yeah? That's where you get to at the end. I'll tell you what, goodies. TNT. <sighs> TNT. No, who are TNT? Yeah, the delivery people. Right, of course, because uh, of DVDs, TNT. I was thinking that you meant um, oh, like a website or something. I th- no, I, oh, do you know what? I, <laughs> I was thinking of uh, Turner Classic Movies, the TCM. No, there's a TNT channel as well, isn't there? Let's say probably. Yeah, there's a lot of channels, isn't there now? It's Cartoon Channel is TNT. I was thinking mm. that that was somehow involved. Right, okay. Oh, that's fan club. Um, <laughs> this is <laughs> this is. Um, Oh, cool. So, uh, they haven't arrived yet? No, I've been sat in for two days waiting for them. It's like being in prison, Nick, but actually being in your house with stuff. Yeah, I know, I've had to wait in before, uh, but um, uh, not not to the extent of you, you, but um, you didn't have any food in your house either, did you? At the end of day one, I didn't have any food, and I didn't get any in case they were just a bit late, and they were just going to deliver something. But then I've eaten since. I'm all right now. It does get to that point. I once had to go out to pick up a package, and uh, when I went out to pick up a package, that's quite a nice sentence it is, to lovely. say. Say it with me. Pick, pick up a, a package. package. I didn't get it right that time. <laughs> <laughs> um, say it at home. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's it? good. You did it right. And so oh, lovely. <laughs> this is proper radio. Interactive, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> I went to pick up a package. Pick up, I can't. I went to pick up a package. When are the Sony Awards? Are we up for that? So, <laughs> the Sony Awards don't exist anymore. Do they not? I went to pick. I went to pick up a package. Pick up a package. <laughs> to pick up a package. Pick up a package. P- pick up a parcel. Pick up a parcel. <laughs> no, pick up a. Pa- pa- I went to. I went, so I got a red car through the door. It's like open all hours, and isn't it? Uh, I went to. I went to uh, uh, pick up a parcel. Package. I to pick up a package at the fucking fucking post office. I went to fucking pick up a fucking package. <laughs> <laughs> talk about it but fucking hell it's hard isn't it it's fucking hard it's been a very bad week <laughs> it was my birthday on Monday and a really nice day and then since then I've kind of like gone fucking hell that's it two years left and then I'm 40 fucking hell since the beginning of the end <laughs> I'm 40 in April Oh, fuck it. Hell, keep it light. <laughs> <laughs> fucking. I went to fucking pick up a package. Pick up a parcel. I went to pick up a parcel. Pick up a parcel, yeah. Anyway, long story short, by the time I got home, there was another bloody red car through the door. And I'd only had to go and uh, wait another 24 hours to walk all the way to the post office. Corner of the road, actually. It's actually nearer than Fubar. <laughs> and, uh, and that's close. Uh, five minutes around the corner from my house. And, um, uh, yeah, so I had to pick it up uh, the next day. Uh, another one. But that was uh, t- just at the height of me not leaving the house and just uh, ordering a lot of things. <laughs> I'd recently moved into my flat 
uh, I was uh, alone for the first time in a long time and uh, retail therapy was my only friend. Um, so it's a, it is a fun thing. You do get a little bit of a buzz off it, don't you? Yeah, but I do. But uh, so, uh, so fucking, I, I met up with uh, uh, my, uh, <laughs> I met up with a friend. It's my PR lady, I was going to say, but I met up with my friend. Uh, Amanda. Uh, hello, hello, Amanda. Amanda. Uh, hello, Amanda. I know she's out there listening somewhere. Um, and uh, she's not. <laughs> uh, she's, she's dealing with Catherine Ryan at the moment, and, uh, and uh, I, I'm sure that's um, she's getting a lot of press. <sighs> it's quite a West End show. Uh, no, I've taken a break. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I went out for lunch. You're coming night. back soon, aren't you? Uh, at, at the Pleasant Theatre. Uh, yeah, for three nights only, uh, and then an additional one in December. Um, <laughs> and then I think I'm not going to do it ever again. So that's it. This is, these are my retirement gigs. Oh, yeah. What about you? Uh, You're on Sunday brunch, aren't you, this week? Sorry, on telly. I don't think I finished my Amanda Emery story. Sorry, carry on. Uh, I was uh, out for lunch with, That's my, fan club. with Amanda, and um, uh, and I'd had like a couple of glasses of wine. I'm not drinking so much at, at the moment. Uh, I, I, don't worry, guys. I'll get back up there. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I went for I went for lunch. You've not retired from drinking. No, no, no. But I, I don't I don't actually um, enjoy drinking as much at the moment. I kind of like get a bit. I'm I'm very busy. I'm working. I'm writing a lot, and um, when you get a fuzzy head, it's kind of like it's difficult to kind of. Uh, in the old days, like I'm talking like when I was 23, 24, I would write plays, and I would write plays. Uh, I'd get in. Well, we can ask. Uh, we can ask uh, uh, John about this later. Um, but when I get into my um, full flow, yeah. my full writing force, it would generally be between midnight and one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and I would uh, drink uh, three bottles of wine uh, between um, one o'clock in the morning and uh, <laughs> two. <laughs> no. <laughs> and seven o'clock in the morning. And I would get all my writing done. And I would be kind of like, um, uh, like fucking Jessica Fletcher in <laughs> Murder, She Wrote. You know, you whack the music or on Stephen for... Or Stephen J. Carell. Uh, at the end of... At the end of it. Yeah, the, yeah, was he at the end of Murder, She Wrote as well? I think well. he probably was. That's he, fan club. He did Renegade as well. Did and he? He, he, actually, uh, he actually had an acting part in Renegade. No. Did he, did he do his famous bit in it? I don't know. What, what the typewriter? Yeah, no. But, Should have done. But I was like that, right? And uh, for like like six or seven hours a night, I would be like, dr- dr- you know, drunk. And then by the end of it, I'd finish r- writing because yeah, I couldn't stand up anymore. Um, <laughs> well, I could stand up. What I do because my because um, my desk was right next to my bed. I would stand up and then collapse <laughs> onto my bed and then sleep all morning and then. Um, when you were doing it, did you feel like Ernest Hemingway or like a proper... Did you feel like... you do, Did you romanticise the idea of being a writer who drinks? I wrote... Yeah, well, I mean... Were you like, oh, this looks good? No, because it was a very bleak period in my life. Right. Um, uh, I was... Uh, I'd been to university. I'd be... I was a hopeless overachiever. Like... You I, didn't overachieve? <laughs> no, I was great at it. Okay. So you're pretty, you're pretty good overachiever. I was overachiever. an amazing overachiever. Right. Right, where you know I did I did well at school without really trying, 
and uh, I did well. I didn't do amazing, but mm-hmm. I, I didn't. I didn't put the effort in, and I think that's what a lot of people's excuses are, isn't it? Well, you know, I did okay, but I didn't put the effort in. I <laughs> certainly didn't. I didn't. And then I went to university. I didn't read a single book, and I ended up uh, uh, getting a first. I um, did the same thing. We got a two-one, but yeah. then I realised I probably could have done a lot better if I'd really knuckled down. I couldn't have done any better. No, you couldn't have. I mean, and it that's was the, just like that's the top one. And then after university, I was just like, well, this is amazing. The whole world is at my feet. I left university. And then all of a sudden, it was just like, actually, no one gives a fuck about your arts degree. Uh, you're, you're, you're shit. You're yeah. a piece of shit. And uh, you've got to start right at the bottom. Yeah. And then you go, oh, fucking hell. And there was my friend, uh, my friend John didn't go to university. He became, uh, he worked for Pizza Hut. Worked his way up through the ranks. Then he was the manager of Pizza Hut, and then he went into business for himself, and he became a business guy. And um, by the time I'd left university, he'd already running his own business, and yeah. you like go, "Oh right." And so I had sort of like this period where um, everything was sort of like came crashing down to earth, and I was like, "Right." So when I was drinking a lot, it was medicinal. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, that was, but that, I think a lot of people drink in their in their twenties. But I just, yeah. So, but I was writing as well, and um, I wrote so much uh, that even to this day, I still find bits and pieces where you go, "Oh, I've never used that." Yeah, um, it's quite weird. But a lot of it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do at university? I, did, I must know this. I did a drama. Uh, it was called Drama Colon uh, Theatre and Television. So okay. it wasn't a drama degree, it wasn't an acting degree, we didn't write plays, we didn't, it wasn't very, you know, we'd look at um, theatre from, um, the the course was called Theatre from Another World, and uh, the nerd inside me was like, this is going to be great, but it was actually, uh, it was mainly South African theatre, right? Um, a lot of heavy apartheid stuff, which was very interesting, but it wasn't about Martians. No. Uh, so that got me down. It didn't get me down. You <laughs> had a lovely time. <laughs> had a lovely time. Um, Actually, but you, that's what you have achieved, don't you, now? Because now you're involved in theatre, Pleasant's Theatre, 25th to the 27th of October. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, it's worse when you do it. Television. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so uh, so why have I got into that? I was writing, and then... Uh, we're talking about... Uh, oh yeah, drinking. So I don't drink as much anymore. I did write, but I've, like literally, there were like hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of mm-hmm. stuff that I wrote. And do you find it difficult now to get into writing? Um, if I've had a drink, because there's always that. I remember Richard Herring wrote something about um, like he could. He, I think it was in Bye Bye Ballam, but it might have been in another thing. But Richard Herring was saying that um, that drink is like to the writer, it's like the devil. Because right. it's always like going, hey, you can have a drink. And then you do have a drink. And then the next thing is, you know what? I'm pretty tired. I'm just going to call it a night tonight. And then you go to bed. And then you go, I'll just do it in the morning. And then it's always like a drink. Having a drink is like delaying delaying the work. And it's just like, of course you'd like to have a drink. But you've got to think of it as maybe, I don't know if this is a terrible thing to do, but you think of it as kind of like a reward at the end of the job as opposed yeah. to, um, you know. A, a, a tool. Yeah, um, but then I think thinking of alcohol as a reward anyway is kind of like um, the slippery slope, isn't it? Mm. But um, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so I had like a couple of. If I've had a drink, I, the, the little voice in my head is always kind of like, "Yeah, when you go to bed at ten thirty. <laughs> Whereas when I was in my twenties, 
I'd only start working at one and then I'd work all through the night. But a lot of that was shit. I find it takes me so long to get going when writing that I'll start writing it quite late at night. Then write it to a point where it's a bit late and I go, this is great now because I better pick it up so easily in the morning because I'm so, I'm in the zone now. And I wake up the next morning and have exactly the same build up again. Yeah. Hours of just hours and hours not of doing sitting it. around just like putting it off, procrastinating. Yeah. That's uh, what they call it in the industry. And, um, and I find the time when I'm most, my brain is most fertile and I can do my best work is normally uh, 25 minutes before I've got to go and meet someone. Yes. And I'll be just like, literally just like going, fuck it, I'll just like, oh, this, and that makes sense. And yeah, I'm fixing problems that have been on, the, you know, on the page for ages. And uh, yeah, and that's the worst bit about it. Anyway, I was going for a drink with Amanda and <laughs> I'd had two glasses of wine with a late lunch. It was about four o'clock and uh, she had a meeting. So I was going to meet her after the meeting. And um, uh, yeah, so I, I found myself in Soho and uh, I went into uh, FOP. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, the next, when I came out of it, I mean, it was weird. I was on the phone talking while I was doing it, and it was kind of like, it was almost like um, a supermarket sweep <laughs> where Arrow Films had had, a, had had a sale, and I was just going, oh, my God, it's all so cheap. These are films that you will watch once. Yes. But, but it's all so cheap. It's like, um, and I ended up buying, uh, I bought, Piranha to yeah, yeah. King Kong, Fellini's Eight and a Half, uh, <laughs> La Strada. Uh, I was buying like some really highbrow stuff, but oh, yeah. I was also buying kind of uh, uh, you know um, Wolf Wolf Guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a Sonny Chiba film. Oh, is it? Yeah, I didn't realise that. I thought it was. Uh, it's quite a recent one as well, isn't it? No. Oh, isn't it? That's Wolf Cop. Oh, Wolf Cop. Wolf right, Cop yes, is yes. different. Wolf uh, Guy is a Sonic Chiba martial arts film. About. I've definitely, I've conflated the two. Yeah, in I my think mind. you've done that. I think you have done that. I watched. So this week I watched uh, George A. Romero's second film. Oh yeah. Uh, There's always vanilla. Oh, is that a comedy? Is it? I don't know. I haven't seen it. Um, is it a comedy? Didn't we work out last week as well that? Night of the Living Dead is exactly oh, 50 years old. On my birthday. On your birthday, on that's the, right. It was released on the 1st of October, 1968, and that's it's 50 right. years old. And you go, wow, it's 50 years old, but you go, that's not much older than me. No. And that is fucking frightening <laughs> when you go, it's 12 years older than me. Fucking hell, fucking hell. I don't, I don't want to die! It's so but Also, when I was a kid, that idea that that was... <laughs> it still felt relatively recent. Well, what, Night of the Living Dead when you were a kid? Well, no, I mean, like, it feels like, sort of, it's in black and white, and it feels like it's an old film. That the idea that it's it a 50 lot more. years, yeah. Mm. And then you think, oh, I probably would have known about Night of the Living Dead when it was 20 years old. Yeah, but I think, like, the Beatles always felt like uh, they were a different generation. Oh, yeah. And then when you work it out when you're older, you go, oh, it was like nine years, ten years before I was born. Yeah, and then when yeah. you know how much ten years is, it's like, oh, well, yeah, it's yeah. ten years since I last performed I Think You Stink in Edinburgh. Uh, and uh, we're celebrating <laughs> the 10th anniversary. <laughs> uh, keep buying them tickets. And, uh, yeah, so ten years kind of, sort of like isn't much. No, I always do this thing at the minute where I go, God, I can't believe I'll hear something from 1998. And I'll go, God, I can't believe that's ten years ago. And then you go, it isn't. It's 20 years ago. Yeah. It's 
Conair is 21 years old. Wow. Which is what? Is that like the same distance between me being born and Psycho coming out? Yeah. Oh, crikey. That's fucking fucked up. I saw Conair at a special screening that they were doing. They did one. They did for a couple of years. I think it was called, was it like National Cinema Day? And everything was a pound. Do you remember that? No. You could see a film for a pound. And all of the cinemas were really oversubscribed. So I went to see Conair, but I watched it whilst the cinema was so packed. They wouldn't do it now. Health and safety thing. But the cinema was so packed, there was no seats left. And so I was watching it sat in the aisle. Oh, the wow. cinema because they just oversold it. Oh well, and it was really exciting. It was really you know it was more than full. I bet it that was, was an amazing screening. Oh yeah, did people love it? People loved it, and we'd all paid a pound to get in. Con Air is one of them really weird films where people have ret- retroactively misunderstood it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> where they go, oh, it's always listed on like top ten worst films set yeah. on a plane or something like that and you go hang on a minute Con Air it's a comedy Con Air is a comedy Con Air is amazing Con Air is like um, like uh, they've made a naked gun film almost yes it's, yeah. it's kind of like there's, there's, uh, it, right it's, it's a it's a pretty um, hardcore action film yeah with sort of like proper violence in it so it is an action film it's not like a spoof of an action film yeah but the comedy is the other part of it yeah where there are jokes that are there deliberately, it's like that fucking time we went to see fucking Robocop and oh, the yeah. fucking Prince Charles fucking theatre. <laughs> Prince Charles Cinema, we went to see. And I think that because I interviewed Tommy Wiseau, yeah. um, I think The Room, um, The Room is one of those films where it's so bad that, uh, and we asked him about it, we didn't say it was bad, but I mean, I think he knows. Um, <laughs> or, or Greg does. But um, The Room is one of those films where he just says, oh, you should watch it in a cinema. You watch it in a cinema where everyone's shouting at the screen and throwing spoons at it. And you go, oh, right, OK, so that's what he does. And the Prince Charles Cinema, obviously, they, they make a lot of uh, money um, showing The Room. Yeah, they show yeah. it once a month, I think. And it's kind of, and I think that's great. And they do sing along a Sound of Music mm-hmm. and stuff like that and sing along a Disney film. And they do all of these interactive experiences. And that's brilliant. But the negative side of that is that it has a bleed-on effect to all the other screenings. Yeah, that so everyone do. thinks everything is interactive when it isn't. Everyone thinks that everything is ironic. Yeah. And you go, well, uh, so I went to see the Die Hard trilogy three years ago oh, yeah. at Christmas. And I made it halfway through Die Hard. No, I don't think I, I watched Die Hard and absolutely ruined by Bella and shouting at it. Um, and then I, I had to, I couldn't face watching Die Hard 2. And I thought, oh, maybe everyone would have gone home by Die Hard 3. And then I was just like, I've lost my. I've yeah. lost my. And when we went to see the Paul Verhoeven sci fi trilogy, so yeah, we yeah. saw Robocop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers. And all the way through fucking Robocop, people. That's awful. It was just awful. Just fucking. Uh, 20-something dickheads that are just like can't appreciate anything on a level that isn't ironic. There's also the idea that Robocop isn't funny. They were laughing at it like, ah, they that's were, silly. That seems laughing, silly. It's, they, like, it's meant to be. They were laughing joke. at the jokes. Yeah. So it's like jokes that are there that are deliberately <laughs> funny. And they were like going, ah, it's funny. And you go, yeah, no, you're laughing at it for being funny. That's the idea. I bet at the time... No one realised that was funny. And it's like, they did. People, you're not the first generation to appreciate things. The worst was this fucking kid behind us, wasn't it? And oh, he was yeah. like going, oh, mate, check out this well-rubbish fucking 80 CGI. Yeah. And you go, 80 CGI? 
There was no no eighty CGI. There's no eighty CGI. It's stop motion, you fucking prick. Fucking hell, and it's a fucking art form. It's a lost and dying art form. It's probably a died art form now. But fucking stop motion is fucking incredible, and yeah. it fucking shits on CGI. And you're fucking pointing at that love. And I went to see Alien, and there's the shot where um, Ash's head gets knocked off, yeah. and then she's sort of like fiddling around with it, and then there's sort of like uh, someone walks in front of the camera, and then they fix his head, and then it's Ian Holm. Yes, and uh, and. Uh, you just think, right, I, I, never, it's never even occurred to me, never even occurred to me. And I went to see it at the Prince Charles Cinema, and the people are pissing themselves, going, ah, pointing at the screen, going, it's an old special effect. And you're just like, hey, it's just an old special effect, dudes. Uh, uh, <laughs> it makes me love the film more. Yeah. It makes me go, and it fucking works hell. as a special effect as it, well. It, it, it doesn't make me go, um, uh, well, I'm just going to fucking. Do, do, what, it's like you're talking to someone uh, very clever. And uh, it's a very interesting conversation. And then halfway through the conversation, they accidentally shit themselves. It doesn't discount the fact that they've actually made some interesting points in the chat. Right? You've got to see through the shit and actually go, actually, it's valid. Fucking, and I think that that's probably what we're lacking in the world now, a bit of compassion. Um, but then I don't mind seeing something like Big Trouble in Little China um, at uh, Prince Charles Cinema. But um, we have it's like a fun experience. Yeah. Anyway, so Con Air is one of these films where um, people are now looking at it going oh my god his accent you know when he goes when he says put the bunny in the box I mean yeah. Nicholas what was Nicholas Cage thinking with that hair and the thing it's just like that is one of his best characters I mean he's like a, but he's also totally straight in it isn't he he's not at all like um he doesn't play it big and it's all like they're essentially the villains in it are like Batman villains they're yeah. so like over the top kind of when you, cartoon villains. When you look at Suicide Squad, yes. and you go, "Oh fuck, how have they fucked this?" Yes. Right? It takes uh, the it takes what an hour, forty five minutes to introduce all the characters, yeah. and they introduce Will Smith three times. Yeah, and you go, they're essentially bad guys. You go, there's two films that you should have watched to understand yes. how to do that. You should watch Predator, where there's very little information about any mm-hmm. of them, but you get you totally buy into them as characters and them uh, with a relationship. You know that how they work together as a team and their relationship with each other and their personalities you get all of that in a very short amount of time and then the other film is uh, Con Air mm. where you've got John Cusack basically just like narrate- you've got all the bad guys coming off a bus and John Cusack just narrating who they are yeah. and he goes Cyrus the virus killed more people than cancer and you go Right, I know who he is, he's yeah. the bad guy. And then they just get on with the story. You just go, why didn't you just do that in yeah. Suicide Squad? And the worst thing about it is they do do that in, uh, cinema, uh, in, uh, in cinema Club, in Suicide <laughs> Squad. They, uh, That's Cinema Club. They have, they have the characters come in and then they have like all of their stats printed up yes. on the thing, which apparently was something that the, um, the, the trailer editors added in when they did their pass ah. at it. Because it got famously edited by two lots of people. David Ayer did his edit and they didn't like that so they handed it over to a trailer yeah. uh, company who were used to editing films between one and a half and three minutes long. Yeah. And so they did the whole of Suicide Squad and then they did like a, a mega cut of both of the cuts. And then it's, that's, it's just a fucking... But that's it. even the comics of Suicide Squad, when you watch them, you go, oh, I get it, it's like the Dirty Dozen or something. And you go, well, just... There's, just like, make, there's literally lots of films that are the, the, the archetype of what the comics are based on. Yeah. So it'd feel, like, really obvious to go, well, let's just make a thing that's like those films that the comics are based on. So all the bad guys get sent on a mission because they're disposable. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. And do you know what? If you know them from the comic books and you've got... For instance, that scene at the beginning of the Dirty Dungeon when they're all lined up yeah. 
yeah. they're all like famous actors and yeah. you go oh Ernest Borgnine and uh, it's Lee Marvin in the Dirty Dozen uh, yeah, yeah. Right, so you've got all of them like all lined up, and you recognise them all. They've all got their own baggage with them, and that's great. Put costumes on them. Yeah. Put superhero costumes or supervillain costumes on them. Have them all lined up, yeah. and then just send them off in a the thing. Then you spend the film working out who they are. Yeah. Don't spend fucking forty-five minutes introducing Will Smith three times. <laughs> that film has Batman in it, right? Yes. And I walked out of that film, <laughs> and you go, "Fucking, how bad has the film got to be for to have, <laughs> for me to walk out of a fucking Batman film?" Um, uh, but yeah, so Conair is just genuinely just I, I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great film. I think it's really yeah, I and mean, it's aged pretty well. I think the um, the bad guys are really likable, and they've got you know good chemistry. They're, well, they're proper bad guys. They're, yeah. they're evil. And even the thing that people laugh about with uh, you know with Nicolas Cage and the bunny rabbit, that's a joke. It's not. It is a joke. It's meant to be funny. Of course, it's a joke that he needs Put, this. They're having this huge, you know, macho fight yeah. over a stuffed bunny rabbit. It's like they know Put that's the funny. Put the bunny in the box, <laughs> <laughs> and then he doesn't, and then they have a fight. It's funny. The bit when uh, they're doing the map. Yeah. On the fr- he draws a map in the dirt, and he's like going, "Okay, this is the compound. This is the plane. We got to get from the compound to the plane." And he goes, "What's that?" He goes, "That's just a rock." <laughs> Funny. That's a joke. And they've even stolen that and put that in other films. I think, yeah, go, it's just an idea that irony didn't exist twenty years ago, or anything wasn't. It's it, like it's meant to be. It's a huge film, and look at the fucking cast. It's just all it's just all indie actors. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. You've got John Malkovich, Ving Rhames, John Cusack, Steve Buscemi. Nicholas Cage started out doing Coen yeah. Brothers films. It's just kind of like it's it's absolutely fucking Steve Buscemi, Danny Trejo. You know, so I imagine. Yeah, it's great. Dave great. Chappelle. Dave Chappelle, who's I mean, he was that was my first introduction to Dave Chappelle. Yeah, yeah. And that's a funny scene. That that scene's hilarious. Yes. When he gets Birchett on his car. <laughs> and he goes, oh, oh, it's amazing. Anyway, I love Conair. Um done half an hour. Ving Rames. Oh, it's time for a song. Uh Nick and Nat's fan club on Fubar Radio. Nat asked me, uh, is, that, is this Alice Cooper? Like, yeah, of course it is. It's always Alice Cooper. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're into the, the second leg of the first leg of the <laughs> second time we've done two hours. Ooh, yeah. so I won't mention it. It's just, we're just doing an extra, extra thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, oh, I didn't tell you my story. Yes. Um, so, uh, I did... Um, uh, so I rented up in FOP recently and I bought oh, yeah. a load of stuff, right? And it's like, right, okay. Um, um, but uh, <laughs> I did um, Drunk History. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did Drunk History like a couple of years ago. Was it two years ago? I can't remember. I was doing 1066. Uh, and if it was like a couple of years ago, then it would have been 1064. Do they give you any... Is it, is it entirely based on what you know of nah, it? No, they give you... Well, I don't know. If, yeah, sure. They give you a cheat sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just turn up. So I was... Um, they do two... When we did it, they did two sessions, right? So they did the first session where you meet them at midday uh, at a pub. And then they do the second session where I think that the next guy turns up and he meets them at maybe four... I think the next guy was uh, Tom Perry when we did it. So I met them at, at 12. And it is, uh, and, and the idea is it's such a weird experience because basically the whole point is that um, you, when you normally drink, you're not necessarily drinking to get drunk. 
you're just drinking and then being drunk is like a byproduct of yes, that. Yes, yeah, yeah. This is like one of the only times where, um, you know, and you can drink to excess and get drunk, but like, I think that it's the process of drinking, right? Um, but um, what are you writing? This is such a complicated. Right, don't do it. <laughs> um, so, um, so, uh, um, so, uh, this is like one of those experiences where you're actually drinking um, in and order the, to get drunk. In order to get drunk, and uh, and, and also there must be a pressure to get drunk, right? Yeah. So it's probably harder to get drunk because you've got this kind of, I mean, that your body's probably kicking in all this stuff. Yeah, I like, mean, you must be fighting against it. I mean, yeah. it must be like uh, being under pressure to fuck. Do you know what I mean? Uh, fortunately, I'm good at drinking. <laughs> fucking uh, no, uh, I'm, um, uh, I'm 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 drinking a lot less, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, so uh, so you've got like a gang of people, and there's one there's a runner that that uh, sits with you, and he basically tries to meet match you drink for drink, and um, that must be a funny job for a runner, it's right? Weird, it's weird, uh, but they're probably all young, aren't they? As well, yeah, they're probably really young, and you just find it kind of the whole experience is just a weird experience, you know. And so, so you're just chatting with them and bonding with them as well, just chatting, and then they've got you've got like a sheet, and it's got like bullet points of 1066, and these are the things that we want to cover, and because uh, they're going to act it out with like another group of people um, on location, and so you're going like, oh no, yeah, sure. So, um, so I drank. Um, I, I had my first pint at like midday, and uh, it was Peroni. And all of a sudden, my mouth fills with water, and I'm just like, I'm going to be sick, right? Uh, and it was it's kind too of, early. It, well, uh, that normally wouldn't bother me, you know. <laughs> if it was like the day after a wedding or something, yes. you'd just go, right, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but this was just like, Whoop, and I was like, oh god, I'm in front of all the lads, <laughs> and uh, and I, I was like, like. Really felt under pressure to, yeah. you know, and so I kind of like calmed down and I went down, I went back down. I thought I'd start with lager because um, it's a soft, you know, do you mm. know what I mean? You don't want to start with spirits and no. wine at midday. So I had like, then I went down to bottles and so I had like, so I had a pint and then I had a few bottles and then we, and it got to about like two and they were like, okay, okay it's right, two o'clock, we're going to take you over to the flat now. So I've been drinking by like, for like two hours. Took me over to the flat. And I think the idea is that I film with them for four hours and then meanwhile Tom Parry arrives, it takes me up to six and I finish at six. Meanwhile Tom Parry arrives at two to the pub. Two to the pub, drinks for two hours. Is that right? No, he arrives at four at the pub drinks for two hours that takes him up to six and then he starts filming yeah. at six right um so uh so so i go over at two and i and i'm drinking and then there's a medic and he keeps breathalyzing you and uh, they're kind of like making sure that you're not too drunk and that you're not going to die it's just like okay so um so they're breathalyzing me and uh and I'm like, okay uh and i think i'm drinking uh, i can move over to i think i'm drinking vodka now so you um, thought you were going to be sick, but at no point were you actually I sick? I wasn't sick, no. But um, but it was r weird, because it was like the first drink, and mm. I was just, the very first sip, I was just like, oh, hang on a minute, I just can't do it! <laughs> I think it was, I don't know what it was, the pressure. pressure. I think Maybe it was the pressure. Because it was a weird experience, because this isn't like, I'm just going to, I didn't want to drink, it was just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to dr get drunk now. In front, you feel very vulnerable as well. It's like, I imagine it's exactly like shooting porn, where... Um, you, you know, you, but you're not naked, but you're 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 vulnerable. You're emotionally. And naked. then I was naked. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, so anyway, by the end of it, um, I drank. I drank quite a lot. I drank like uh, four beers 
four bottles of beer, a pint of beer, uh, half a bottle of vodka, uh, and a bottle of amaretto. <laughs> and uh, that's enough, isn't it? And it, um, and by this point, I was just like, and they kept breathalysing me, and I was like, and I was, the, I was out of everyone, I drank uh, equal the equal most uh, to Ed Gamble. Oh wow! Uh, but um, Ed Gamble. Uh, fell asleep during his and had to sleep on the sofa while Nish was doing his. Right, <laughs> I just find it really grim. It's also it must be daylight and everything, right? And it's all yeah, it's daylight, and you're oh. in a you're in a you're in a flat, and you you're the only one that's drunk, and it must be like kind of like um, I don't know. It must have been kind of like Oliver Reed or something turning up for an interview. Yeah. And you've got cameras on you and you're hammered and you're just kind of like... Uh, it, do you feel embarrassed as well? Yeah, you're a bit self-conscious, but then the alcohol helps with that. And then yeah. you just then there's a part in your brain where it clicks and you just think, fucking hell, I'm like Peter Euston off right now. <laughs> I've got everyone in the palm of my hand and they all think I'm fucking hilarious. And you're just there and you're fucking turning, you know, you're reciting the facts of 1066. The first one was a bit dry. The second one was kind of like, you've got to do it three times. first one was dry. second time was kind of like a little bit funny. And then the third one was just like, I couldn't even remember my place in the story. And uh, they make sort of like an edit. Um, anyway, so it gets to the end of the day. I'm fucking hammered. And then they go, right, we've got to take you home. And I was just like, oh, okay. So I get in a black cab with the runner, who's also drunk. And uh, we're driving. Uh, we've got to drive through central London from where we are. And we stop off at uh, Cambridge Circus, right, where the Harry Potter play is mm -hmm. on, right? So we stop and off where at... Fop is. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so we stop off at Cambridge Circus. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and we, we get there. And I'm just like, I don't want to. I don't want to go home. Yeah, it's fr it was a Friday night. I was just like, hang on a minute, I don't want to go home. It's Friday night, we're in central London, I don't want to go home. And the runner's <laughs> going, well, we have to get you home legally, we have to get you home, because they have to deliver you to their door, yeah, to your doorstep. You can do what if you like as soon as you get home, but they have to legally yes, get yeah, you yeah. home and put you to bed. They don't have to put you to bed, but they have to see you go through your door, and then they go, right, it's not our responsibility anymore. Yeah. You, know, you can do anything you want after that. You can you know, drink another eight bottles of vodka if you want and kill yourself, but I mean, then you're not their responsibility. <laughs> um, so... Uh, so I said, I don't want to go home. It's been in central London. I know, I know loads of people. I could go to Soho Theatre. There'd be people that I know at the Soho Theatre. I could go anywhere. I could go anywhere I wanted. <laughs> right? Uh, and the runner's like, going, oh, no, you, you can't, you can't. And we're in the taxi. And then the taxi stops at some traffic lights. And I jump out and I just leg it. Right? And the runner uh, starts legging it after me. And he's like, going, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And I'm running. And he's <laughs> running. And then eventually, um, uh, uh, I go down a road and uh, I end up in the Soho Theatre and I get in the Soho Theatre and it's about like 6.30 and it's just a bit too early and I don't know anyone in the Soho Theatre, right? And I'm looking around, there's no one I know, there's no one I know. And I'm just like, there's got to be someone, I've got to like, uh, I've got to go out, I've got to do something, right? I've had to, what a waste of alcohol to not use it in some, <laughs> in some adventures. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm there and then, uh, the, and then the runner uh, catches up with me and he gets in the Soho Theatre and we're at different ends of the Soho Theatre and we can see each other across <laughs> all the tables and it's like a Mexican standoff and we're just like going and it's like I go left he goes right I go right he goes left and we're just like <laughs> and then eventually I, I, uh, I run all the way around and I get out of the side of the theatre and, uh, and he grabs me and he says please Nick 
don't do this. <laughs> I was like, oh, right. and eventually he bundles me into this taxi, and um, and uh, I get I get home, and um, and uh, I go to and I, I I lie on my bed and I and I and I make arrangements to go out. Right, it's now what about seven o'clock, and I make all these arrangements to go out, and. Um, uh, the next thing I know, it's eleven o'clock, and um, I, I've I've been asleep, and my <laughs> phone has got all of these missed calls of people that I've you know stood up right, and then I look at my history, and I've texted all of my ex girlfriends, and my phone uh, says that I've talked to my agent for an hour right. <laughs> I'm just like going, oh fucking hell! I've absolutely destroyed my life. Drunk history has ruined my life, and I roll over in bed. And next to me in bed is a copy of Big Trouble in Little China <laughs> that I bought from Fop in in cash. So when I jumped out of the taxi at Cambridge Circus, I ran into Fop. I got no memory of it. Ran into Fop, paid cash for Big Trouble in Little China, and then I, and then I did all the other stuff. So I ordered a, I ordered a, uh, an Indian takeaway and uh, watched Big Trouble in Little China. I had an amazing night. Um, it's just the right level of drunk to enjoy it. Um, uh, you're getting uh, you're getting our first guest on the phone now, aren't you? So uh, that's exciting. Um, that was like that's a great story. I've perfect, not heard it before. Perfect anecdotes to exactly. get us up to uh, the get us up to time. Didn't review anything this week. Did go to um, did go to uh, the London Dungeon. Oh yeah, how's London Dungeon? It's fine. I got my fortune told by the Zoltar machine at the end. Uh, it said oh. a wise old. This is the fortune. A wise old owl sat on an oak. The more he sat, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why can't you be more like the wise old bird? What does that mean? It means, uh, yes, my friend, your greatest fault is that you talk too much. Learn to keep a secret. However, your other golden qualities make up for your talkativeness. Your anxiety to help others and your consideration of other people's wishes has earned you many friends. Saying shut up and... But that's, listen. I mean, that's no good advice for the radio, is it? We've no got two advice. hours to film. Well, obviously, it's not specific. Don't they know I've got a two-hour food bar exactly. show on a Friday? It's all about the game. I mean, if it said that, it would be pretty impressive, that. It would It would have, but it didn't. Um, okay, so... Uh, okay. So, um, I'm told. Is, is it, this, this... Okay. The, the furthest one, is it? The furthest one? No. The, the, right, I see. The, 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 so, not the furthest one. Um, hello. Is Henry Whittacombe there? No. Henry's not there. Oh, hang on. Is anyone here? I mean, come on. Are you... Hello? 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 Oh, yeah, right, okay. Oh, we might have a bad line. line. We've got a bad line. Hello, Henry? Henry. Hello. (laughs) Henry. Hello. Very... Like you sound like a robot. I can barely understand. You sound like a robot, mate. You sound like a bloody robot, mate. I sound like a robot. We should have done it via Skype video, I think. I um, think that would have been the way to do it. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you want to try and get him back? OK, we're going to okay. try and get you back in a second. He's in Wales. We know he's in Wales. We know he's in Wales. Yeah. I wonder if there is a... Henry's on to talk about the Aberystwyth Comedy Festival, um, isn't he? Yes. Um, um, now, now, we're just going to keep talking, and then you okay. can sort this out. This is your this is your end of the deal. Okay, we'll get Henry on in just a second, hopefully. Anyway, so Henry's on to talk about the Aberystwyth Comedy uh, Festival. I once went to, talking to the London Dungeon, I once went to Whitby, where some of the book Dracula is set, and I went to the Dracula Experience, which is quite a poor kind of uh, um, 
uh, wax dummy museum all centered around the story of the book of Dracula sure <laughs> and it was uh, and it was almost too scary for me I went oh, in really? but it just sort of freaked me out because actually a, ty- a terrible waxwork museum that you think is going to be really funny in the dark with lots of sound effects is actually weirdly creepier than if it was just telling the story of Dracula I went to um, uh, a haunted house in Mallorca where there were actors that were dressed up as Freddy Krueger and Leatherface and all that stuff and uh, I was 11 and that was the most scary thing I've ever done different uh, health and safety standards I think yeah, sure. we're told Henry Whittacombe is now on the phone Henry? Hello Yes! Yes! He's, yes. he's here How are you Hank Whittacombe? I'm very good Nat, were you just talking about the Dracula Museum in Whitby? Yeah Oh my god me and Emma went there like three years ago and as you say like it's rubbish yeah but it can't help but be scary no that's how I felt I thought it was going to be a thing where I'd sort of make fun of it and be a bit aloof and above it yeah but then I just kept getting freaked out by essentially waxworks I think but did the guy at the end chase you in like there was a guy, an actual person dressed up at the end that chased you down the corridor. Yes. And we were so freaked out, I hit him <laughs> with an umbrella. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what, through the I heart? bought into it that much you, you, that I poked him with an umbrella. So scary with him that you, you, uh, you killed an actor by <laughs> shoving an umbrella through his chest. Uh, it did kill him, to be fair, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but That's he how was, you kill a vampire. He was missed. It's funny that how you kill a vampire is also how you could kill a person. Yes, yeah, true. So yeah. very little proof. Cut his head off. Cut his head off. <laughs> Stab it. Um, That's how his I eyes. Know a vampire, because when I cut his head off, he died. Mm. Um, you're calling us, Henry, all the way from Aberystwyth. Yeah. Are you in Aberystwyth yeah, now? Yeah, I've arrived today. This morning. It's the festival this weekend? Yeah, it starts today. Oh, wow. And are you very yeah. stressed? No, because, like... It's obviously year one, and so obviously everyone knows from Hancliffe and that it's grown to like 300 shows in a weekend. Sure. We've got 30 shows on this weekend. Like they're all belters, but it's, it's sort of 10% the size max, so it's like starting again. So it feels, it just feels really nice. I, I'm so excited about it. Like we've got these beautiful venues, we're getting them all sorted, and um, it's all in hand, and it's going to be a really nice weekend, I think. But you say everyone knows about Mac if they don't. Yeah, uh, the the comedy festival is sort of like the coolest comedy festival in the country, isn't it? And it's and it's one that all the comedians like going to. Well, you shouldn't say that because uh, then people will go to it. People go to it, of they? course. And, uh, that's the yeah. issue. It's, the it's sort of like uh, the worst kept secret in comedy, yeah. where um, yeah, where I mean, it was it was a it was a secret for about four or five years. Because you wanted are, it to be a secret, though, didn't you? You were very... That's, right, that's absolutely... Yeah, absolutely. And that's... You can't get those years back, the early years of a festival, you know? And that's why they're so beautiful, when people are turning up and finding this thing and going, oh, my God, this is great. And, like, Mac's still amazing, but yeah. it's changed into something different. It's, it's still totally on, different. Yeah. It's still on the same principles, you know, and yeah. it's still got the same values. But now the secret's out, you know, and it will yeah. always be this this new... this different thing to what it was in those early years and yeah. so starting again just feels like you know just you get those early years again and you you guys were there you know how magical those uh, those first few oh, years are yeah. Yeah. yeah that's why i'm just buzzing at the moment really it's was great. that the main reason for doing another one kind of yeah like max 10 next year and it just feels oh, wow. very established and very sort of at its 
it's kind of at its capacity, I think. It's not got much growth left back in it. So, yeah. And we almost want to protect it as well as much as we can. So we thought, well, if we start another one and we grow that one and sort of that can act as like a release valve for Mac and keep sure. it protected and keep it at size and... Yeah, so there's a lot of reasons, really. And, like, they're only 20 miles apart from each other, Abris. That's what I was thinking, yeah. But they're completely different in personality. So, the Abris was by the sea. It's a university town. It's just, it's like, it feels like a seaside town. It also feels like all the best parts of a city packed into one tiny sort of strip by the sea. And it's, it's just amazing. And, like, the potential for growth here and the venues are stunning. And the idea is, whereas Max in the spring with all this, sort of energy and work in progress and show people experimenting. The idea is to have this festival in the autumn where people bring their finished shows. Yes. And so it's got a whole different personality as event. And I think it's I think it's gonna feel like that because it's got like we've got lots of little black box spaces. So again with Mac we go into any room and we try and turn it into a performance space. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And and in ABBA, because the university has got like drama courses and television courses, you've got loads of little studio spaces all around town. And you just walk in and they're they're ready, you know, and like they've got rakes in them. And so it's just supposed to be like Max, more sensible brother. I don't know. That, <laughs> that probably doesn't sell it. But like it's probably going to be slicker, isn't it? I guess the shows slicker, are by their yeah. nature so, going to be much slicker yeah. and much more finished so whereas, product. And I think that really complements the seasons as well. Of like spring, everyone's feeling that sort of energy. And then almost in winter, you want to be going to little theatre shows and things like that. And so I just wanted this sort of brooding thing by the sea. Seaside towns in the autumn and winter are beautiful places, you know. And like, I just, just to be seeing those, I can see it in my mind, all the people going along the seafront from show to show. It's going to be, it's going to be an incredible festival. And it's like in year one, I've just had a meeting with the crew and it's just like, you're just saying, it's all about the idea and potential this year and we're laying down a marker and going this is what we're going to do sure. and it's it's just a very special moment in a festival's life and, and yeah. the crew are a big part of mac as well aren't they it's that kind of people the crew you have at mac come back every year and they've yeah. kind of grown up and lots of them have gone from being kind of quite young people that have all and they've all a lot of them have got jobs within the industry and things and it's all this it feels yeah. like you're really seeing people kind of Absolutely. grow up and move yeah. on and kind of doing something for fun that ends up being like sort of careerish and things then yeah and it's so nice because like we never set out to really be a stepping stone for people into the industry or things like that but it's so nice that it's worked out like that that yeah. people have come and been a part of a family to build build an event and now like one we get to do it again with a bunch of people the same bunch of people like the core crew have come in and uh, sort of launching this one with us and then also like you say like they go on to do Edinburgh and they go on to do get jobs in London and it's like but Mac is always central to them there's so many that it's like that yeah. weekend is untouchable for them and yeah it says like, a lot that they keep coming back no one has to keep coming back but mm-hmm. everyone wants to yeah I think it's weird like it's it's quite interesting because like we just did Mac how we would do something yeah and like people often say, oh, it's so different, or it's like the feel is so different. It's like uh, we we kind of don't understand why. It's just like it's just the way we did it. Yes. And like we worked out as we went along. We weren't sort of trained in the arts or theatre or anything like that. And it was just like, oh, this is how we do it. Yeah. And it's just sort of become this thing that we do things differently, and the vibe is different. Everybody feels so relaxed, and it's it's great. I mean, it's it's 
Yeah. Well, it's, it's, but it's sort of like when you start out doing comedy and you can be any sort of comedian. You can choose to be kind yeah. of mainstream and to be um, kid-friendly. Or to, do you know what I mean? You can do kind of like... Do clean materials, rather. And yeah. uh, you can do kind of like anything when you start out. And... Uh, um, and you've kind of like done sort of an al- an alternative route, you know? Um, yeah, and I think weirdly, like for me as a comic way back in the day, like I I never felt like I fitted in any sort of bit of it, and I, I didn't feel like I had a home, and so it's kind of why I stopped. But it's also why Mac came into existence and all the stuff we do in Wales, because I was just like, okay, I'll just start doing my own stuff here mm-hmm. yeah. and creating on my terms. And it was like, it was that stubbornness that is what uh, what's created Mac. Rather than me bend to something that I didn't feel was right, I kind of just said, okay, I'm going to have to let the performance <clears throat> go. And, but I can still make this little little part of the year each year, like a few days each year that we get to go, this is how we do it. Yeah, you know? I think you've managed to, through through Mac and through, through all of the... Um, festival work that you've done i think you've managed to kind of really um help a section of the comedy industry going i know that when i started when was that like uh, so when mac came, what was the first one 2010 yeah 2010 yeah so that was the uh, so i hadn't kind of like done keep hold of the gold was my first big show and i hadn't done that yet i, I previewed it at mac for the first time and then through those early years mac was kind of like the thing that i would look forward to most in the comedy calendar yeah it would get me yeah. through all of the bad gigs that i'd have all year long not edinburgh yeah. i've never had a bad one <laughs> but um <laughs> but but mac fest got me through uh, you know looking forward to the next one and to start the new show and it was it was always yeah. the perfect place to put your last show to bed and then uh, and then start work on your new one for me yeah. um and i think that that probably uh, goes across the board for other comedians as well. Yeah, it certainly. Felt I think it's, it's definitely the thing I feel most proud of is there were a number of acts that have said I wouldn't still be going if it wasn't for Mac, and it's like that is big. You know, you just go, wow, okay, that's like in the early days when they're, mm. you know, what it's like early days, and you're slogging away, and you go, no one really understands what I'm trying to do here, especially the industry, mm-hmm. and then to have something that's going, yep, well, we like what you're doing, it's interesting, and like, yeah. It, it's so nice that there are acts still well absolutely huge now and you just think ah we were a big part of their development and like showing them that we we loved what they did and we could understand where they were trying to go with what they were trying to do you know and the industry in so many I mean I'm not going to start but like the industry often has to catch up really and I feel like the fact that I was coming at it in the early days as a comedian who was putting on a festival it was like I had a completely different perspective of like stage out and that yeah it's just sure. not like, but you're yeah. also very protective of us as well there's yeah. no press it's a, it's a safe space yes yeah but I did I think I felt like that I certainly feel like oh it's like my people it's all the people I like and they were all the people that go to Mac would be all the shows I would want to see yeah. with none of the people that I wouldn't want to see it just felt like it was just it was like everyone in it's almost like well I could just watch these people and be happy and it felt very yeah. much like and including when you get new people and you have new people join and new acts yeah. you always go yeah that's who I'd get and there is that thing yeah. of like well that works they fit in that all makes sense and there is a funny and it does I think it does like engender a sort of sense of belonging to a group yeah. which you might not otherwise have 
Well, I mean, year one, we were just a bunch of friends, weren't we? Really? Yeah. It was that those thirty odd shows was just our sort of group in comedy, really. And, yes. And then, like, it kind of built out from there. Mac is still very much built on my taste comedically, which I kind of I sometimes feel guilty about because it's like it does seem like an unfair barometer that some some people won't get to do Mac because because I don't. Don't it's like not, they're not good. There's there's amazing. Co- no, no, it's not the word. Like they they That's can what be you amazing. Mean, isn't it? That's what you mean, Henry. <laughs> they, they can be amazing at what they do, but because it's not on, my back on brand. Well, I've gone down a terrible. But I, here, I, I did um, sounding very corporate all of a sudden. <laughs> I did Brett Goldstein on a very smaller scale. I did Brett Goldstein's podcast a little while ago, and he was asking me about the comedy night I used to run in 2008. And he said, what are you trying to do with that? And I said, well, I was just trying Tombola to do... Of fun. Tombola of fun. Yeah, you did it, Nick. And I was saying, all I wanted to do was do, like, a comedy night that was fun. And he said, it's weird, isn't it, that that would be an odd thing? And it was. Yeah. It was just that when, when we're starting out, it's that often the comedy nights you're turning up to to perform at are awful. And it yeah. was actually doing something, actually making an effort and trying to create an evening that was just fun for the people who were on and it was fun for you to do, and it was fun yeah. for an audience, felt like you were doing something unusual, which is mad when you think about comedy as an art form. You go, like, I just want to do something run, enjoyable. <laughs> we, we run regular gigs and things like that, and it's so odd that it, it kind of feels so easy to get right, and yet there's so many out there that aren't right. You know? yeah. I mean, Everyone thinks they can run a gig, and then you go to the gig, and there aren't any chairs, <laughs> yeah. and you're just like, well, and the microphone isn't working, and you go, hang on a minute, the microphone doesn't work, and there aren't any chairs, what the fuck are you doing? And there's no audience, and I've spent 20 quid on a train ticket from St Albans to come for the, I'm going home, and then that was it, because there wasn't a gig. Everyone thinks they can run a gig until they can't, and um, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a perfect example of just like, going, this is how you do it, through years of experience, <laughs> This is how you do. Uh, I mean, if I was to run a gig, I would make sure that they were chairs. <laughs> you you know? do your best, or you're trying to. You're just trying. I'll at least attempt to get as many people along as I can. Well, from um, an experience of running my own nights, you just like go. I'm just going to make sure that the bar gives the, the acts a drink when yes. they get there. Yeah. Because the amount of time. I, you know, so it's learning those little things from a from a first handers point of view and yeah. going. How would I want my acts to be treated? Yeah. No, that's exactly it. I think central to every decision we've made with our festivals is we want the acts to go away happy and it's like so when, when we walk into a room we go what would make an act happy in here what layout and what, what what's the best we can do in this situation mm-hmm. and then like it's all been about that and it's all been sort of like going well if the acts are happy and enjoying themselves they're going to have better shows which means the audience have a better time because they're further into the connection that they want to be having with that act and like so it's I mean that is the, the central element of, of what Mac is really of going. We wanted just wanted our mates to be having a really nice time for the weekend. Good. Um, I think um, the audience buy into that too, don't they? They kind of buy into that idea yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's that's so uh, that's the Aberystwyth Comedy Festival, which is going to be this weekend, starting tonight. And where is that yeah. in Aberystwyth? Yeah, all Aberystwyth. over. <laughs> right. Okay. So. Oh yeah. Where? Yeah, yeah. So the old college is where the box office is. It looks like Hogwarts. It's just this <laughs> mental building on the seafront where like it's just beautiful and then it's got the royal pier by it and then further up in town we've got the commodore cinema which is like a 1970s built cinema and the, the bar in there is insane if you're coming to the festival make sure you check out the bar in there 
um, Ardgork, which is the Welsh language theatre in town, uh, we're using that. Um, we've got venues all over, and it's it's going to be just a really nice weekend of comedy by the sea in in Wales. Terrific. Um, yeah. Have you got any particular shows you'd recommend? If you had to recommend one, uh, if I had to, we don't do this Mac, really. We do, oh, do no. a sort of blanket. But uh, Abba, we've got Sam Campbell, which I saw in Edinburgh. And he's an Australian actor who won the Barry Award. And your listeners probably know him, but he's not that well known in this country, but it was one of the best things I've ever seen. And he's on tonight. And like, do you know when you go to see a show and you just, you suddenly go, oh yeah, that's that's real. Like I haven't laughed like that in so yes. long. Like I've laughed at stuff, but not like that. And like, yeah, so that's tonight at seven, nine o'clock. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, saw some other great shows in Edinburgh, like Lazy Susan's show was brilliant. John Roberts's, we've got Love those. Lazy Susan, they're amazing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's just a really nice. Lou Sanders, but she's sold out. Um, Josh is sold out. We've got David O'Doherty tomorrow night. That'll be amazing. Um, so yeah, really lovely line. It's all on our website, abercomedyfest.com. Co.uk. They'll find it. You can find it. If you're there. It's all good. Thank um, you very much for joining us, Henry. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Love you. See you Love later. You too. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bye. Uh, we're back <laughs> uh, we're just talking to Henry Whittacombe uh, about the Aberystwyth uh, Comedy Festival if you're in Aberystwyth or around in Wales then go and see it because willing to travel I mean it's literally uh, year one and uh, that is the best time to uh, fill it with as many people as possible <laughs> absolutely <laughs> deny it the grace period that it needs okay cool <laughs> so um, we're joined now in the studio uh, by by with Bye. 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 We're joined in the studio now by uh, John Niven, uh, who is an author and a uh, and a screenwriter. Well, you should well. know, of course, what by and with, because you would have. You'd think you'd you'd th- <laughs> I'm in trouble if I don't know that. Guy. We're just talking about you. You're on a book tour because you promote your new book, Kill 'Em All. Yeah. And we're just talking about where are you in your book tour. I think I'm sort of seven. I'm at the losing the world to the live to live stage. <laughs> How many dates are you doing on your book tour? Nine in total. I think it was in it was Glasgow, Edinburgh, Inverness, Manchester, London, Brighton, and then Bristol tomorrow, and then Liverpool on Monday. Now, what does a book tour consist of? Um, well, it used to be a lot more boring that you go along to Waterstones at three o'clock in the afternoon and sort of you know, and I'm, I'm more of what you might call a nightclub act. Right. <laughs> um, so, but now in recent years, like most of the dates in this tour have been in sort of clubs, pubs, you know, um, in more you know convivial surroundings at sort of uh, eight o'clock at night, and we've had some great guests. You, you get interviewed by someone, and you do the um, you know, you, you read from your book, and then they'll ask you questions, and then you'll do the audience Q and A. But we had um, Stuart Braithwaite from Mogwai in Scotland did the interviews, and then. Catelyn Moran did London, Stuart McConey did Manchester, right, yeah. Sally Hughes did Brighton, James Bradfield from the Manic Street Preachers is doing Bristol tomorrow. So, you know, you get the different guests in, it's, it's fun for the audience rather than a boring writer, you get some 
And me and Nick come from a sort of stand-up background. So would you... Well, I'm a stand-up. Well, <laughs> well, well back, stand-up I'm background. I'm a year off. <laughs> but, and you're a stand-up. Yeah, yeah. Stand-up Nick, background. Nick used to be a stand-up. I used to be a stand-up. <laughs> <laughs> fucking, like, <laughs> but do you have, when you're doing like a book reading, do you have a certain section? Is there a bit of it where you think about that as a bit of performance as well, right? A little bit. There's a chunk from a, by Kill Your Friends, and over this one to sequel to it. There's quite a long chunk in, in that book about how young indie bands generally get treated when they get signed to major labels. And I could do that whole three-page bit verbatim after oh, that. Oh, well. So um, you'd find a young, you'd say to the audience, Emdy here who's in a band, you get some 19-year-old kid who'd put his hand up, and you'd do the whole bit sort of <laughs> to him in the style of the character. But I mean, most, uh, unlike you guys, most novelists aren't sort of natural stand-ups. It's kind right. of like, you sp- being a writer, you spend a lot of your time alone. And then to, to have to go out and promote it and get up on a stage in front of people, it's not the natural, which is habitat for a lot of us, which is why you'll use like, guest interviewers and it helps, but I guess I've been doing this 10 years now, um, and you get a bit more. For instance, I've got two or three chunks now that I know I can do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm almost. I remember when I did Captain Moran early on in her published writing career, I might have asked her 10 questions over an hour. Then I did it a few years later when she'd been touring a lot, and I might have asked her two questions, and she could go for like, you know, 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, back yeah. Back and 20. So I might, I'm, I'm talking about maybe next year doing a tour where it might just be me and doing a couple yeah. of readings and then just to sort of tell on some of the anecdotes that weave into it. But no interviewer? No interviewer. Which is a scary prospect for, for a writer like me. Yeah, sure. Um, so do you like it then? Is there a bit of you that quite enjoys it? I kind of do. I mean, it's, it's like writing a novel. Stephen King famously said that writing a novel is like crossing the Atlantic in a bathtub. It's a long, <laughs> quite lonely haul. It's just you for a very long time yeah, in the room. Yeah. So when the book comes out and you get to you know come and meet guys like you and do things like this and all that, it's it's the funner aspect. Yeah, of yeah, it. yeah. But then again, after a couple of weeks of this, you think, oh god, I just want to get back to my study and write, and write the next <laughs> book. You know? Yeah, I don't think it's that far away from standing. No, I don't. Especially doing that kind of performancing. And I guess you have got all those book festivals now, and you got Hay on Why and all that kind of stuff mm. that feel like they're. And like places like Latitude have like yeah, a literature yeah. tent. Latitude's a good one to do. I've done all these that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. It's getting better in this country. But I think for a while it was a bit fusty. And as I say, you do it in the afternoon in a bookshop. And they wouldn't charge for it. they just just say, come along. Yeah. I think when somebody's free with that, it kind of gets devalued. Yes, yes. But then I'm lucky. I, sell, I do quite well in Germany. Me, me and David Hasselhoff. <laughs> but you go there and they treat it as a to go and see an English author they treat it as like an evening's entertainment and yes, they pay yeah. like 15, 20 euro ticket and, and the bigger German cities I can draw get two to three hundred people in like the bigger towns so and you, you notice that it's been like that in Germany for a while so hopefully it's starting to improve a wee bit here now I think and here's a thing here's a thing that you, it's, it's, it's vulgar to talk about but when you've got people paying for tickets Where's that money going? <laughs> that feels like it's very well, much part of like a, the publishing industry. Yeah. Also, feels like where's all that going? Well, the one they do now is that you you buy it and I had some readers sort of complaining a wee bit on Twitter because the tickets were quite expensive for the tour, like 20, right. 20 quid. But that includes the hardback, which is like you know, oh like yeah, sixteen. Sure. 16 like, they're yeah, only yeah. paying a few quid to actually hear my drivel. Yeah, yeah. the, the bulk of the ticket price is, is going for the book, selling you know? the book, which yeah. is the point <laughs> of the book tour. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I remember about twenty years ago now just going into a Waterstones to have a look around 
and it was obviously at a time that mad Frankie Fraser, the gangster, <laughs> was well, doing well, a signing Frankie. in Waterstones. But it was obviously like poorly publicised or something. So he'd be walking around, but there'd just be a table in the middle of Waterstones that mad Frankie Fraser, <laughs> on his own, looking furious, and like he was about to like tear someone's throat out, just sat by himself tapping his pen on the table. That so you're almost go in, and he oh. felt a threat that I feel like I've got to buy his book. I don't really want to, but he sat there on. It was just sort of this surreal thing of seeing this guy that you've seen on documentaries yeah, yeah, about yeah. like. So I took him out and I got his throat, kind of thing. <laughs> it's that sort of thing. And he goes, and it, was, it just felt so weird that he'd be in that environment as well. Yeah, I'm just one. sat in a bookshop and <laughs> no one's coming to get Mad Frankie Fraser's autograph. You, you thought Mad Frankie could have intimidated people exactly. into buying his book. He'd be, he'd be doing it <laughs> it almost worked. <laughs> there was the, um, Steve Coogan did the, uh, he did the book tour for... Um, uh, Nomad. He did the Alan Partridge yeah. book Nomad. And as a publicity stunt, outside, I think it was, it was either going to be London, Manchester, or Norwich. But outside the <laughs> water stunts in one of those places, he parked the cockpit uh, Partridge uh, <laughs> car out the front without permission. And then it just got loads of uh, parking fines all day. Because he was just like, he can pay it. Yeah. And he was just like this thing. Everyone was taking photos of it saying he's there in yeah, water stunts. That's all the publicity you need, isn't it? It was park, amazing. Park, he just park. parked it illegally out <laughs> In front and it had cockpits uh, partridge, <laughs> uh, but but with the amendments on it, and yeah, I just thought that is absolutely fucking incredible. I thought, yeah, I've got to get a car like that. <laughs> walk that into the plot of the next book. Yeah, um, when you are touring around, uh, so are you? Uh, how how consecutive are the dates? Is it sp- spaced out? It's pretty much, I think, we look sort of four in a row and then a day off, and then you know, it's not, it's not pretend, it's not like a motorhead tour, so yeah, yeah, sure, sure, one sure. would be like 48 days, life on the road with one day off in the middle. <laughs> it's yeah, yeah. not that grueling, you know. As I said to you before, I, I, I had the misfortune, I could feel this cold coming out at the start, and I thought, you know. Yeah, the sensible thing would be a bunch of lemsips and straight to bed at 9.30, yeah. but then we, we, we had the good sense to open the reading tour in Glasgow. Yeah, <laughs> There's like 30 people who I see twice a year, and yeah, yeah, yeah. you walk in and you think, yeah, I'm not getting out of here. If I try, <laughs> if I even have the balls to try and go back to the hotel at 9.30, and ripped apart by an angry mob, you know? He's changed. He's changed. <laughs> exactly, oh, he's landing wise now. Pons, <laughs> him. Are you driving around on your own? Uh, no, our publicist Kate, lovely Kate, who's here somewhere. Um, yeah, so I've been doing doing it all with me, travelling and making sure I get to where I need to be. Although you know, I'm, I'm, I often think I can I can get from train station to the you know yeah problem yeah. one. But no, I think that's it. I think sometimes when you've got like an agent in comedy, they they try and I think because a lot of comedians are essentially idiots and children. <laughs> like I remember people like phoning me up, going, "Can you find your way to the club from the station?" It's like. Yeah, I've got the phone. Yeah. I'll manage. But there's a lot of that kind of, can you can you move it? Can you? Yeah. I'll tell you where you're going. You need to yeah, go up this street. I get so, uh, I, all of my senses get completely numbed by how nervous and terrified I am. And so even little things like looking up a gig on my phone is impossible. So to break that down as easy as it is, yeah. to make it as easy as possible, that's the thing. Uh, I, that's interesting. Would you see you a bit neurotic in that? Way, you I'm totally in the wrong profession. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I don't, I can't fucking yeah. I'm, oh, ma- I'm, ma- I'm making my way, you've but chosen the wrong game. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. No, I get that. You sometimes have that thing where you're going to go on and you go, "I mean, this is the last thing I want to do." But what I find, what I've come to learn after doing this for some time, is that I just don't look at the schedule. 
I just get up in the morning and go where you're pointed. Yeah. That's you what start, I do. If you start looking at it, you think, oh, God, we've got to do that, and then we've got to get to there, and then we get a cab, we're going to public transit, and then what time's that at? And then, oh, God, I'm not going to get to the hotel. If you start doing all that, you just go mad. I think it, uh, I've never booked a gig that I can't get to in a day. And they'll be like, I'll have conversations with my with my friends that have you know real jobs and they've got families and stuff like that. Or my dad or someone, and they'll say, uh, so uh, where are your gigs this week? And you'll go, I don't know. And they'll go, and they cannot believe that yeah. you don't know. They think you're some sort of absolute fuck up. You don't know where you're going in the week. And I go, I don't know. I can get to Bristol, can't I? I can get to, I can get to anywhere. As, as just the Alcoholics Anonymous say, one day at a time. Yeah, one day at a time. <laughs> absolutely. That's absolutely. So you said the train. Are you getting the train to, to these places? Or um, are you driving around? God, what have we been doing? Mostly, um, although I drove because I took the family up to Scotland for a few days. So. So we drove that sort of leg of it. Um, but train's good, isn't it? Because you can crack the laptop out and actually do a bit of work. Oh, really? And on the UK, I think, see, you get the internal flight in the UK. You know, you've, you're an hour to get to the airport and you're two hours fanning about there. Then you're all, you know, and then you've got a cab. Train, you're on it, you can walk and you get out straight in the city centre. Wherever you're going. I used yeah. to like a train, but no, um, I, I, I do like it. a service station. Yeah. All real men love a services. It's a chance to <laughs> gratuitously spend money. And, and it's also a chance to <laughs> eat something horrible, but with the excuse like, well, it's that, not like I've got much choice. There's nothing else. Yeah. I would not normally be having this family I don't really bucket want, yeah. of KFC yeah. at 11am. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> me, me and David Trent on tour was just like, well, well, we'll only have one KFC a week. <laughs> like five KFCs later. Uh, the one fast food that I occasionally crave. I don't, I don't know if you know the Mike Myers uh, movie, so I married an axe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Scottish dad in that yes, who talks yeah, yeah. about Kentucky. He goes, you know, <laughs> why do you hate the colonel? He, goes, he puts an addictive chemical in his chicken that makes you cream it for nightly smart arts. I hated the colonel with his wee beady eyes and his smug grin. You're going to buy my chicken. And I was fortunate enough once to meet Mike Myers oh, wow. um, for a movie project. My screenwriting partner, Nick, and I. His, somebody's management company loved the script we'd written and asked us to meet Mike uh, about developing the movie idea with him. And so we this we... How we long ago was it? When was this? About, this would have been 2011, maybe. Oh, wow. So about seven years ago. Um, and we, but we had heard that Mike also really likes talking to screenwriters and he loves spitballing and performing and that very likely nothing ever happens of it. So our manager sort of went well, if you want to do the meeting you, you'll have some fun but I'm not sure it's going to lead to anything yeah. I went you know what don't care I just want to go absolutely so yeah. we go in I thought I'm going to get a selfie for my son who's a massive Austin Pearls fan and I said and I am going to get him to do the fucking colonel for me yeah. but to do the, to do the <laughs> Scottish dad so yeah, yeah. we got in there and we were very professional the meeting was great went on for ages we went, meeting went for about two hours and right at the end um we got, I got the phone and I went, sorry, right? And he was so sweet about that. And then I went, one last thing, the Columbo, one last thing. Scottish dad from my next one. He just, without a beat, straight in. He sort of ran a hand through his ear and assumed the face. His face just suddenly... Because that's his own dad, isn't it? That he's yeah, based, sort of based it on. He just sort of became the character and then did a whole, you know, he, he ran with it and did the whole impression. I love my wow. eyes. I really love him. So, you know, worth doing the meeting for that alone. Absolutely. And this is a, one of the most LA things I've ever seen. So three, two days after meeting him sitting at home, giant FedEx van pulls up outside, the man gets out, walks up with an envelope and open it. And it's a Mike Myers compliment slip with great meeting you written on it. He'd had FedEx from right, New York yeah. or, or, or LA. Like FedEx, you're saying comps like at the cost of whatever. <laughs> Just to say, nice meeting you. That's nice, though. It That's is nice. Happening. No. 
I, I love Mike Myers. I think he's one of those people that's even like underrated. I wish, I wish he's kind of it just carried on. I could watch a Mike Myers movie now. I thought I think because uh, what was it? The Love Guru. Everyone says the Love that, Guru ended. That ended. was that was pretty much it because this was not long after that. And sure. the went, look, he's so cold in the town right now after the Love Guru. He can't get a movie made. That's thought, so weird. That's such bullshit, isn't it? You yeah. make all those great movies and one that's maybe not great. And it's yeah. like, you won't work again. That's yeah. crazy. But also the because the Love Guru is a terrible film. But I mean, um, but when you watch all of the prep that he did in order to put that together that's that's great there yeah. was loads of workshops I can't remember where I saw him it must have been on TV somewhere right. but it was the, he did all these workshops in character which looked great they looked like really amazing Edinburgh shows where he would come out and he would yeah. be in a black be box and he'd do, be, do the character but he, at the um, time he'd come off the back hadn't he of not only you know Wayne's World and then Austin Powers and he'd be some of the biggest comedy yeah, yeah. of time and all the and Shreks then, all the Shreks and then this one bad movie and it's, you'll never work I mean it's like, imagine you guys doing 20 fantastic shows, one not so good show, and they come in and say, Yeah, okay, you're fired. Never working again. Yeah. Or in KFC, I think 20 great bargain buckets. And I presume we're on we fire, but we've done 20 awful shows. We haven't had our mugs made yet. Oh, yeah. um, if you've been here long enough, they put your name on a mug, and we have. So we're oh, still see, pending. I've got Harriet's mug. Yeah. Right I've got yeah. Mark. Yeah. I'm not Mark. No. <laughs> you're, not, you're not safe yet, guys. No. Get that mug done. <laughs> I don't get one made myself and just bring it in. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. we'd have to chip Sean's name off though. <laughs> um, yeah. So your new book, Kill 'Em All, is out. Came out yesterday. Came out yesterday, it indeed, it indeed. And it's a sequel to Kill Your Friends. Yeah. And it's the main character again, Stephen Stelfox. Yeah. That's a good name. What's the? Where's that come? What's the origin it, of a name exactly like that? that came from. I wanted an, an alliterative name. I knew yeah. it was going to be the same two letters. I'm sure you know what alliteration. I don't have to, to, to go into that. Tell me more. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> oh yeah. Offer is it? Um, uh, yeah. When you're picking up a parcel. From the <laughs> <laughs> so I um, as I had Stephen, and then the Stelfox is actually the um, surname of the bass player in Star Sailor. It was around the time I was writing the book and I think I like the fact that the, the stealth aspect and the fox, the yes, cunning, yes. it just felt like it fitted. Oh, yeah, it makes sense. And that, that, that it was. Sure, because um, I was reminded of uh, the, uh, ben, <laughs> what's the... What's the Ben Elton uh, one that he did about the yes. music industry where oh, he called his main character Simon Trowell. <laughs> 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 Come on, Ben. <laughs> That's a little bit lazy. Dude. It's a little bit, little bit on the nose. A little bit on the nose there. Who could it be based on? I wonder. <laughs> Simon Trowell. When I, when I was researching this new book, because obviously the characters still folks had similarities to some like Cow, and uh, in the first book, which was set in 1997, he was 26, 27. Yeah. Now he's 47, <laughs> and he's very rich. You know, and he lives this sort of fairly vacuous life and so I spent it sounds lot. amazing though the way you describe it just to say I know I've probably taken the wrong message from that but <laughs> you, you're into it <laughs> I spent a lot of time reading Simon Cowell biographies you read oh, two really? or three Simon I mean that's it's, it's how many has he got there's been a few written about Cowell it's a bit like Trump when you read the story of somebody who has absolutely no inner life yes whatsoever. Kind of, no interest beyond money and yeah. models and yachts and shit it's just like but that's it it feels like I mean it's probably uh, improper of me to judge Simon Cowell in that way. But it does feel like part of the thing of succeeding in an industry like that is not really to have an opinion. It's just sort of having an idea of public taste. So it's not seeing something and going, it's almost recognising it as being, that's rubbish. But 
I can sell that. No, People will love that. Yeah. I mean, famously, Cowell was in our guy at the same time I was. He was at BMG. Right. I was at Polygram, uh, London Records. He uh, and he would fit, he, he only he was one of the few guys who just read tabloids. He'd read the Sun, he read all the tabloids every morning. He knew what the big TV shows were, and he was literally like, get me Zig and Zag or get me you know Robson Jerome. He was just, he didn't give a fuck about Radiohead or making. Yeah. Did you know, he do he the Zig and Zag album? Yeah, yeah. He also did Power Rangers. He did all his records. Oh, my God. Know, God. That's like, who's who of my top it, ten? A friend, of who <laughs> worked, a friend of mine who worked at BMG said they were in a meeting with him once and he was talking about the new Power Rangers records, whatever, with some young product manager went, and what's the B, What's on the B-side? I'm Simon. They went, oh, who gives a fuck? <laughs> <laughs> So I, mean, I don't. Th- he was. He wasn't. He was always pretty close to think what he yeah. ended, ended up being. You know. So there is just something quite cynical. About, it's totally yeah, cynical. Yeah, it's totally, totally cynical. And that's why still folks are to bring him back now because we live right now Brexit, Trump, and all that. It's the time of populism and the lowest common denominator yeah. and appealing to that. And that's kind of what. Stale Fox was always about yes, being yeah, our yeah. guy. He didn't want to sign the cool guitar band. He, he literally signs a track called "Why Don't You Suck My Fucking Dick," that he <laughs> thinks going to be a huge dance smash. Cause it's sort of on all the holiday resorts. Um, so that's the kind of guy. He seemed like a perfect guy to take <laughs> us through what's going on just now, you know. So even then, it was the kind of hey, you'd see people like him or meet people like him when you were doing A and R. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that really stands out about that book is almost it feels at the same time both incredibly well researched but actually it's just that you lived through it so I really like that it goes month to month in 97 and says this is what's big then and I love that thing of people forget about that stuff or there's all those bands that you hear about for two months and then oh this is a big deal and then then Never to be heard of again. Manson, Cooler Shaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bands that were huge for five minutes. In yeah, the 90s. they have one album as, and then you never hear from as them. As my again. girlfriend's fond of saying, everybody got to go in the nineties. Yeah. Everybody got to go for a bit. <laughs> but um, yeah, the book. I think that the other thing it's difficult when you write a book about music or rock and roll and you're sort of making up artists and bands that can feel really false. Yeah, it's time and trial. That kind of, you know, mm. yeah, exactly. Or it looks a bit rock follies. So mm-hmm. what I did try, try to do <coughs> the original Kill Your Friends was yeah, I made up three or four artists but you surround them with, with real. lots of real ones mm-hmm. and it helps the reader go, Yeah, buy this, you know, it feels also it also gives it a context where you're yeah. just not you're not guessing, it's sort of shorthand, isn't it? You go, Oh right, that's what the band is. That's well, that, that, that type of person, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that type of band. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But they're also quite believable. Everything seems very believable and it, it all feels very like plausible. Everything's very like even the sort of fictional songs and yeah. And tracks always feel very plausible. Like, yeah, that could have, I could, that could have been a. <laughs> well, my, as my friend Christian, who we worked the music industry together, when he read the, the first draft of it, he went, "Funnily enough, people are going to think you're exaggerating." Right, <laughs> and of course we didn't murder anybody. Still <laughs> that, that I know, of. but um, the kind of mentality it represents. And when you're writing it, real. were you going through old music weeks and yeah, were you yeah. doing that? Because no, it no, feels no, like and that. And this was sort of pre the internet, quite being what it was. Right. So I remember I had to go to the National Newspaper Library in Hendon, right? Yeah, sitting yeah. there and got all the music weeks from 1997 and going through them all for quotes and chart positions and all that stuff because it was important to me that it, it felt that you were in that year. Yeah, yeah. I had kept some diaries myself, which I, were helpful in a way, but they were only helpful in that I couldn't believe, because when I was writing the book I was maybe 33, 34 but the diaries were from when I was sort of 23, 24 and looking at it, I was like, one weekend we'd be reading, then it'd be Notting Hill Carnival, Glastonbury, 
the D- DMC dance weekend. Now, yes. one of these every like three weeks. And I thought doing one of them now would put me in hospital for yeah, a yeah. fortnight recovering. And it was like every week, it was just the relentlessness of how you go out in your early 20s. And I think yeah. that's it, but it's very believable if you put that onto a month or something. This is everything that's going to happen in May, yeah. and this is everything that's going to yeah. happen in June. You have these things that are just set in the calendar. You've got Glastonbury and yeah. Yeah, Notting Hill Carnival and various kind of um, South by Southwest yeah, and all and so those kind there, of... Yeah, and I think that's what made it... If the book was going to be successful, I think people in the industry had to buy it. If yeah, they had yeah. it, we would have doomed. But then for it to become properly successful, people outside the industry had to get it too. And I meet guys all the time, whether they're <laughs> advertising or banking or any sort of competitive, you know, alpha male industry full of utter bastards love the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, I think you get that totally, because it, it also... Even if you're not in the industry, there's an awareness of those things, isn't there? Like, mm. so you still have that thing where you'll know better than me, but like you still know what South by Southwest is because you would have read something about it or you will have heard. You've got an idea of it. It's like osmosis, though. I mean, yeah, yeah. you live you your life, live and your there's life posters and these, yeah. everywhere, and you know what all these things yeah. are. Yeah, yeah. Plus that stuff's all in the culture more now. I think yes. back back twenty years, people only people in the industry would know what South by Southwest was really, or even what an ENR guy did. Because a cow, largely people mm. know what an ENR man mm-hmm. is now. You know, they watch the guy who does. You know, the guy from Kit Kat advert, isn't it? Can't sing, yes. can't play, look awful. Yeah, <laughs> go a long way. And all those things about the guy who didn't sign the Beatles and all that yeah, kind well, of stuff. Is well, I was that guy for the 90s. I famously turned down Coldplay and Muse. But are you happy with that still? <laughs> yeah, well, you can stand by that? I mean... Well, <laughs> fortunate enough, we went on to do okay and something else. I think I, think I was sitting in the, the park bench in the door today. I might be somewhat more upset yeah, yeah. about it. What was it like uh, adapting uh, your, your book into a film? Uh, it's always tricky in that, you know, you're going from novels three, 400 pages. Because when did the film come out? Film was 2015, and that had uh, Nicholas Holt in it, wasn't and, it? And uh, James Corden. I think my friend Charlotte was uh, on the art department. Charlotte, what was the second? Charlotte Pearson. Um, she did Uncle and some other stuff. She okay. did something, but um, uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's always a weird experience because you know you got to jettison a lot of stuff. Yeah, you can't yeah, I can't all get in there, um, and. But I have a, you know, and I have a rule that once you sort of take the check and you know you you, you don't badmouth the product, you sort of get sure. up with, you know. And I wrote the script, and you know, as as involved as a writer can I can be in those things, but and the budget was quite tight. It's always difficult in those things. If we had more money, I could have done this. Was there a temptation that. not to write it yourself? Uh, no, always kind of. You, I, I already was a screenwriter. Yeah. I'd already written a few screenplays before even I wrote a novel. So almost I, could you have felt you were too close? Or well, funnily enough, another one of my novels right now, the second coming, has been adapted by another guy because he's a director who wants to direct it. So uh, do you know what's nice? Sometimes you feel I've already kind of done the work. Do I have to do it again? Do yeah, sure. Feel, you know, but isn't there a little bit of the fact that someone else is getting paid to do something that you could quite easily do? Well, there's that. Yeah. So yes. d- d- don't get me wrong. I've, I fought for it before <laughs> with the check was alluding enough. You know? Yeah. And especially a job like that when you can go. I wonder how much of this is actually going to be cut and paste. <laughs> well, <laughs> I how much I can get so away. Sadly, with. you can't go as much as that as you hope. Yeah. It's a very different. I mean, novels work by the expansion and the accumulation of detail. And screenplays are all about economy and compression and how little you can get yeah, away yeah. from a very short image. So it doesn't quite work. Yeah, if only I have heard stories of novelists who have delivered screenplays and the novels that were literally just indenting the dialogue <coughs> from the novel and the scene descriptions. Mm. It's but also like, but like Emma Thompson didn't use any of the dialogue from Sense and Sensibility. 
Oh, really? And she won an Oscar. She didn't use anything that was in the I book. And she just started from scratch. She's a great screenwriter. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I love that movie, actually. It's a great movie. I love it. It's a great movie. It feels like one of those ones that almost, if it was a funny thing, but I absolutely love it. I think I, it's such a great film. I didn't film. know that about him. That, that, that movie well if nobody knows that and I've just said it it is possible that I imagined it <laughs> <laughs> but I am pre- I'm pretty sure that was when she won her Oscar that was one of the that was one of the things. and did you know there's not a single line of dialogue that was in Jane Austen's well, book my father-in-law would say it's a poor day when you don't learn something well, yes I'm glad I was the uh, <laughs> provider the provider of that. <laughs> um. but it's a, I think it's a really well cast movie it's that thing where everyone appears to be and they sound like everyone's got the right voice which is unusual I think for books I don't know if that's something to do with the way you've written it but it almost feels like everyone in it both looks and sounds like you imagine they would look I think with a lot of good world there was a lot of people and it also who who really like James Corden and Ed Skrine who went on to be of course in yeah, yeah. Of much bigger movies they were just such huge fans of the book that they wanted to do it for scale you know with yeah, yeah. these people huge money and the also the music if you look at the music everybody said yes to the song but well, I was going to say that would be a lot of the expensive well, yeah, right? the, the, the whole budget of the movie alone could have been the soundtrack of yeah. paying full freaks we've got Radiohead we've got Blar we've got Oasis we've got Chemical Brother we've got everyone you know from the period so no, it and it's it, not like you're using kind of B-sides or album tracks either no, like it's all big the, old it's all yeah. the, give, give us Karma Police give yeah. us Beetlebum yeah. the bangers um, let's play your song. Uh, you've chosen a song today, haven't you? What's your song that you've picked? Is it your favourite song that you've picked? This is probably my favourite song by this band, but when I heard the show was called Fan Club, uh, uh, I yeah. immediately uh, of course, and rather yeah. went with Teenage Fan Club. Do but you know what? That hadn't even occurred to me. me. Absolutely. Me but but, me but also, the, um, Jerry Love, the bass player, just announced that he's leaving the band for touring purposes, so I'm going to go and see them next month, and it'll be the last time with Jerry Love, which is, if you're a Fan Club fan, better than this any of the time moment. Yeah. Well, that's fan club. Nick Hell, Nick and Nat's fan club <laughs> on Food Bar Radio. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> oh, hang on. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> <Freshness> <laughs> fuck. <laughs> we were literally just talking about um, uh, yeah, uh, a skeleton not being radio friendly and uh, going out, yeah, because it tips out and then you don't know when the end of the song is. And then it was the end of the song that we were listening to. Oh, you had to have been there. And in a way, you were. So um, we, uh, yeah, we're back in uh, the studio with uh, John Niven. Um, so uh, let's do, I, I think we're working out a format here. It's really good. Sure. So yeah. we talk a bit more. So, oh, go on. Let's do the. Let's do the. Let's do the. Uh, questions. The questions. Oh yeah, okay. let's do the questions. That's a really good format, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Half an hour of chat, song, yeah. and then fifteen minutes of me, and then you do an interview on the radio, <laughs> and then we have the guest in. <laughs> half an hour of that, and then we get them to do their things. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah. You were here. You you were here, John. When to watch us work it out. What's your favourite film? What's my favourite? Fa- I hate this question. Or. Oh. What's a film you'd like What's to talk about? It's like, well, um, oh. There's a movie by Todd Zalantz from around 2099 called Happiness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Big fan of it. Which Amazing is, film. Uh, it's kind of a movie that if you showed this to ten people, you'd probably have six walkouts. <laughs> you'd probably have two people who 
Oh, sorry, I'm too far away. You probably have two people who found it absolutely outrageous and, you know, terrifying, and you have two people who thought it was the funniest thing yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they ever see. So yeah. I'm firmly with the two people laughing their asses off. Yeah. For those listeners who haven't seen it, it's a sort of multi-strand story with three sisters who all um, have various issues in their lives. One of them is married to a man who we know, but she doesn't, as a paedophile. Yeah. One of them is sort of dating someone who's also very questionable well it's in the, the story's all sort of interweaved into a lot but it's very it's very very dark i should point out if you have a sense of sensibility it's, it's very one, i think it's one of the darkest films i've ever seen yeah but also the, oh, it's the darkest bits that make me laugh the most yes yeah there's like, a scene which you shouldn't really i mean it's, it's almost difficult to talk about and still come out of it sounding like you're not a psychopath but one of the things i think's great about it is that there's a scene in which uh, the paedophile character is trying to drug a young boy. You're going to talk about the bum witch, aren't you? Yeah, and it's, but the weird thing about it is the way it's set up and the sort of jeopardy in, involved in the situation makes you, you're kind of on his side going, oh no, and when he's we, failing to, we, they to do it to like drug. a farce. Yeah. yeah. And it's just kind of like, they play it like it's from a sitcom. Yeah. And, uh, but it's about. I mean, <laughs> but the, the world has changed since the, that film was made. <laughs> the character um, played by the actor Bill, what's his name? He's very good. He's been in loads of stuff. So he's trying to. Uh, the paedophile. Yeah, paedophile. He's, uh, he's got a triple barrel name. William H. Baker. No, it's not, it's not, Dylan Baker Hall. Dylan, that's it. Thank you. Very good. He's trying to drug this uh, young boy who he wants to sleep with with a <laughs> um, sandwich. Um, so we used to have this game back in the day that um, what would your bum witch be? I, I, a sandwich that you like so much that even if you knew it was drug <laughs> and some bad <laughs> shit was going to happen to you, you couldn't help but, but eat, eat that sandwich. sandwich. <laughs> and I discussed this one day. My friend Chloe went, oh, I think tuna mail. And somebody went, ah, the open-faced bum witch. <laughs> so that's what the conversations we used to, think, to have back in the day. The, the incredible thing about that film is that your sympathies in those moments are with him going... Oh no, he's not gonna get. Oh no, he's having well, a nightmare. Well, this is one of the things. Um, no, <laughs> that's not my. That wasn't but my see, takeaway I, from it. I, I do know where you're going with that because I think one of the things you try and do it and art, and this is what I try and do with Stealth Fox and Kill Your Friends, is he's a terrible, appalling, sure. despicable character. But the reader's kind of there with him, and party's kind of rooting for him right. to get away with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're watching something, like, say you're watching Downfall and Hitler's in the bunker and the ceiling's coming in, and the Russian tanks are. Well, party's oh, thinking, how's he going to get out that's of That's a real yeah. weepy for me. Your party's thinking, how's he get out of this? And he goes, it's Hitler, of course he shouldn't get yeah, out of yeah. it. But the, the, the nature of drama sort yeah. of puts you in. It's like if you it? put people in that, that's the sort of nature of any kind of sort of storytelling, right? That you kind yeah. of got to not necessarily root for them, but you've got to have some kind of. Empathy or some kind of like yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a big acting thing. Yeah, yeah. You say so, that you can't judge the character that you're but playing. Let's cut to it, guys. What is your bum witch? Okay, what would it be? Um, I reckon if it was something like, I, I even though I've not got a sweet tooth, I reckon it might be something like a bag of minstrels. No, it's got to be a sandwich, dude. Oh, a sandwich. a sandwich, a minstrel sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it would be in a sandwich. Okay. Mm. Got me a sandwich. It would probably be some kind of like a sausage sandwich. All oh, right, oh, which, in itself, <laughs> 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 which in itself would be, which in turn be what I'd be having afterwards. Uh, in the 1980s, there was an advert for Bisto gravy that um, was uh, a guy making a sandwich out of the leftovers. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sunday lunch. And, and, uh, yeah, and, uh, and they pour the gravy oh. into the bread. Uh-huh. And I've never been able to do it, but, um, yeah, Wait, sure. This is fucking <laughs> fucked up conversation. It's some unattainable dream. You're not trying to win the lottery yeah. here. The yeah, best. but I don't want to go through all the rigmarole of making a roast uh, dinner, a, a roast dinner yeah. and then using it. So I'd much rather just be uh, drugged. And, uh, <laughs> you just can freely I'll take just, it. I'll just trade it. I'll just I'll trade it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't make a roast. <laughs> wow. Ah, the roast, the, the roast beef gravy from which <laughs> And what would yours be? What was my? I don't have one back today. Well, oh, what was yours chicken, now? You know, What's yours now? Well, okay, uh, I think then and now, you know the, the chicken um, Melanesia you get from the Italian oh, yeah, places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicken and scalopini with the salad. Mike, write that, write that down. Yeah, write that down. Are you doing anything after? You? Any <laughs> sides? Any sides? One <laughs> gets brought in. <laughs> well, I tell you, on that, on that. I mean, there was. Uh, uh, <laughs> Where's this going? Well, back yeah. in 2008, there was because uh, I, I don't know this because I was working at the. Um, I was working at the business park in Hatfield, and uh, 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 indeed. Uh, and in my breaks, I'd go and have a lonely lunch. And one of the days, I went for a lonely lunch in KFC, and they did the KFC Rap Star, which was a tortilla, and they put uh, two uh, zinger fillets in it. Uh, it might have just been normal fillets with some bacon and some lettuce, and then they folded over the tortilla, and then they griddled it. So that it came out hot and crispy. There was cheese in it. Oh as well. wow! It was absolutely the. It was the. It was I st- ten years later. Still the nicest thing I've ever eaten in KFC, which isn't hard because it's always better in your memory than it is when you're <laughs> yeah, just doing yeah. it. But um, the uh, rap star with a W was the best. <laughs> was the best thing I've ever eaten in KFC, and uh, and it's gone now. They don't do it anymore. It's so cool. uh, yeah, I would. Uh, that that might be. That's. You I'd get bummed me. over I w- that. I, I want one now, and I can yeah. never have one. Is that where you'd go if you could go anywhere in time? I'd go to KFC <laughs> Hatfield uh, and my lunch break at the business. Oh man, imagine yeah. if you woke up and you go like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're late at work, Helm. Oh no! The last ten years have been a dream. Oh, here we go. We've got a picture of the rap star. Two ninety nine. Totally tasty. Such a bargain. Two crispy strips, slice of cheese, crunchy. Your voice over voice. Tomato? Tomato. Pepper. Mayo. Mild tomato salsa. Chopped lettuce. That does look very good. And you can go diced see, tomato. You can go large with it for three ninety nine. Three ninety nine. Of course. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, crunchy tostato. Oh, no, that's you know, the, I don't that's know if you guys have been to LA, the, the Chick-fil-A, which I know you can't eat there because the guy who owns it is a mass mad homophobe or racist. Oh, okay. Which is not good people. But uh, it's a sort of chicken, spicy chicken fillet sandwich sort of thing. Like that idea is cool. But then you could also make this yourself. You could, you could, you could get, get a tomato one. and dice it and do that. Yeah. But the, the the luxury, the thing I love most about KFC, is getting them to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also you never get it quite right. It's like when Eddie Murphy talks about his mum making the hamburger. I make your hamburger better than McDonald's. <laughs> green pepper, <laughs> 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 burger, green pepper, and egg. And you make egg with muffin. Shut up. No, no. Just uses the egg to bind the meat. It's just this atrocity with not a regular Wonder Bread that's pink from yeah, the yeah, shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where'd you get that big old welfare burger? <laughs> I want my daughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For he's a rap star to go go go. I mean, what, you're just. Uh, yeah. I love the way your two are just uh, trolling you with all these food images. Oh, it's amazing. That's so good. Now. Where's that from, though? 
Fajita Rapster. So this is crispy strips, fajita salsa, sour cream. Is this some rival chicken outlet? Where is this? Well, it feels like it's another. Is this another KFC? Is this? No, that's, it would say KFC all over it. You're, you're being so slow at answering the questions that we're asking you. It's dead air. These are pictures. Um, what, 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 was this, what was this place you were talking about that the homophobe runs? A Chick-fil-A. It's called Chick-fil-A. And it's American place, is it? It's specifically California. And is it a slightly upmar- more upmarket than a KFC? Yeah, it's slightly so. It's just about at the America. It's obviously a bit fresher and perkier. Is it a yeah. five guys to yes. KFCs? Very, very much so. That's gotcha. exactly right. Gotcha. Of course, also, right you, down. you have In-N-Out Burger out there too, which is the greatest <laughs> hamburger. In-N-Out Burger. Mm. Mm. Very, very good hamburger. Your new book's all LA set as well, isn't it? Can I more? There's, there's a lot of that, yeah. It's, um, yeah it's, there's a lot happens over there. It feels like a sort of different tone of a book, doesn't it? It feels like it's... It reminds me of sort of like Barry Gifford book or or uh, like Elmore Leonard or something. It's got oh, that, that sort of I going, mean, I right? I love Elmore Leonard, um, so I take that as a huge compliment. But it was more that... Uh, a couple of people said to me, it's a bit different than the first book. I said, well, in the first book, he was in his 20s. He was in yeah. Camden every night of the week. He was going to four nights, four gigs every week at the Barfly. He's now 47, incredibly rich. He's not... Going to Camden Barfly, yeah, yeah. love her money. He's going to be in LA. <laughs> he's fruiting about in Beverly Hills, being a player. And it kind of, I wasn't the guy to write that first book again, you know. Or yeah. I kind of started it in my late twenties, early thirties, and I could just finished living that kind of life. And was there, was there like, um, what made the decision to be like, I will revisit this character? What was that? I kind of like the f- uh, authors like John Updike in the Rabbit novels, uh, Harry Rabbit Angstrom. He, he wrote four of them over 40 years. Once every 10 years, he kind of used this character yeah. as a lens through which to look at the times he was living in. I love all that uh, stuff. And so yeah. I really liked the idea that I thought I could maybe have one of them of my own, you know. And, and I think it was also, as I said earlier, the sort of lunacy of the last couple of years. There's a really boring, preachy, tedious novel to be written about all that. You know, from the point of view of somebody who's outraged by it all, but I thought it's much more fun to the guy who loves it. Yeah. He thinks it's fantastic that the opportunities to make money and for disinformation and for the lowest common denominator to triumph, that people have kind of destroyed their lives <laughs> for the chance to say, I don't like Polish people, say, on the big issue. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. You know, when you're writing a satire like that, and the book, again, sort of involves fictional character or fictionalised versions of real people and actual real people, it's like... Do you have to have like a lawyer go through it all with a fine oh, yeah. tooth? So it must, cause it feels like, are you allowed to say that about that? Are you allowed to do that? The legal read for the first book was like longer than the novel. I think. <laughs> uh, this one was still not quite as bad, but pretty thick. I mean, yeah. They, there's a lot of notes. The, the big note, there's a character in the book of a, a pop star called Lucius Dupree, who's um, in the book, he's a, a, a white man who spent his life trying to become black through various horrific skin pigmentation. The, the movie Soul Man was very much an influence here. <laughs> um, uh, so and that's he, your favourite film, right? We're coming up to next. <laughs> kind of, yeah, quite like Soul Man. But again, this is a generational thing. The Edinburgh reading, I mentioned Soul Man, there was a shriek of laughter from this girl in the audience. And she got to me and she said, I only found out about that movie the other week. Some university lecturer mentioned it. And I said, oh, did you watch it? She said, oh, no, I haven't watched it. But he just described what it was about to me. And I, I, I refused to believe him. I thought that we couldn't possibly make that film. <laughs> and I was like, dude, we made that shit in the 80s. And laughed our asses off about it and <laughs> went about our daily business. Nobody, nobody picketed Soul Man to my... Soul room. Man, weirdly, is one of those films... Uh, so Soul Man, the, the plot of it, C. Thomas Howell, C. Thomas, Thomas Howell film, uh, tries to get a uh, what do you call it? When tries to get a scholarship, a, a scholarship. scholarship to a, a, a college that is only taking on black people. Yeah, no, he he can't. His dad refuses to pay his tuition. 
because for some reason. Right. So he has to get a scholarship to go. And the he, the scholarship that's kinda of, looks like it's easiest to get is open only to black students. So yeah. he's got a friend who's working in the some plot machinations. He gets some industrial strength tanning pills and basically manages to convince them that he's he's black. I mean it's one of the ways James L. Jones is in this. Is, film. Yes. He yeah. is James L. Jones plays the um, <laughs> professor and also Leslie Nielsen. Is he? Leslie Nielsen plays the girlfriend. He sort of get, he has a relationship with a, a white girl at one point when they think she thinks he's black, and he plays and the racist dad. That, yeah, they go to the house for dinner. This is one of the great. Again, I was telling <laughs> this girl in Edinburgh about this, which her face was just the horror. <laughs> they go to the house for dinner, and the camera pans around the table for the mother and the father and the brother, and you see what they're all thinking, looking at this black kid in the house. So they think with their daughter, and it's like the mum's looking at you, sort of jungle drums pounding. Oh, and to the mum is sort of imagining. Uh, him in a sort of loincloth with a knife and I was saying all my life I think of white women now I was like these crazy the, the sons look at him and see him Prince with a huge tongue coming out in a guitar and the dads see him just a pimp it, was, I mean, just, it wouldn't fly in a bazillion no years. but weirdly at the time that was also supposed to be a satire right and that was I'm sure in its own weird way it sort of weirdly had its heart in the right place but it was yeah. just so completely misjudged yeah <laughs> well you know I, I think it, the I remember rightly it's quite a nice happy romantic conclusion that I he think gets so, to, yeah. know, he, he does the right thing. That's right because the, he got the scholarship that should have gone to this really um, smart yeah, black really, girl, yeah, yeah. and uh, he makes it right in the end. Yes, like, yeah, uh, yeah. As I recall, but I'm sure that's not saving it. For Again, the, yeah, not, not really, for, <laughs> not enough for the millennials <laughs> now at this point. <laughs> no, but then that t- dinner table scene does seem to be kind of like taking the piss out of uh, black white. stereotypes and yes, white yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. and, and yeah, so it's kind of like it's, yeah. it's weird though, isn't it? Because I, I mean, I'm not saying remakes old man, but <laughs> I, I kind of am. <laughs> but, but I do think that it's kind of like you can take something like that. It's a bit like what we were saying earlier about Prince Charles cinema and uh, oh, yeah, yeah. and taking something that was made that's not within your lifespan and just deliberately misinterpreting it. Yeah, well, oh, not yeah. even deliberately misinterpreting it, ignorantly misinterpreting yeah. something yeah. that you don't yeah. understand. A, ne- a, a reflex reaction is to go, "Oh, soul man, fucking hell, that sounds." Yeah. Horrific. But then I, when you actually I take it you've both watched the Jonathan Pye rant about all this, the you know, the comedian. Oh right, yeah, yeah. I don't know which I, He plays a sort of new yeah, caster yeah, yeah. as if he's about to Yeah, you know. I I've seen a lot of them. was it recent? It was fairly recent I think. He does the rant about how um Little House in the Prairie or Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of that one. Of, you know, oh right, yeah. yeah, well yeah. they're going back and they're and re- he doing makes novels, the point that it's almost as if cultural values haven't always been the same and never changed <laughs> about you know, he does the whole you know mm. but he's very good in J.K. Rowling, isn't he? He says because J.K. Rowling got all that grief from the LGBT community when she wouldn't come out and say that Dumbledore right. was openly gay. And John the Pie says I think the gay community are right. I think if your single biggest problem is a fictional wizard not taking it up to the elbow, you're kind of you're winning your battles. <laughs> if that's the worst problem we got right now, well, it just happened with Frank Oz, didn't it? Where Frank Oz said that Bert and Ernie weren't gay, mm. and everyone was just went mental at him. And he started off trying to answer everyone's uh, responses on Twitter. Oh God. And uh, one at a time, and then you just see it, just bit by bit, as uh, everyone just all this hate gets piled onto Frank Oz, and all of his supporters suddenly start going, "Just going to back away from this." Right. This is something like, well, 
they were saying, what right do you have to say that Bert and Ernie aren't gay? And he's just like, well, I invented them. But he also, yeah, I, I think they I, sort of ended up with, like, if you, like he, I think his sort of end thing of that was just to go, it doesn't matter. If you want, it's fine. I didn't, when I wrote it or when I yeah. created them, that wasn't my intention. But if you want, sure. But no one was, no one was you, actually listening to what you had no, to say. No, you're right. Apparently you also think they're fucking bits of felt. The felt <laughs> puppets, you lunatics. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was fucking crazy. There's actual problems out there that need to address. <laughs> Not that's you fucking insane. Mm-hmm. Oh right, we do the game. We go, uh, your your favourite actor is Gene Hackman. Yep. T- TV show. Oh god. The affair. Oh well, the affair and a sort of hate watch we know. What's the, the affair? Fu- I you don't know the affair. affair. Why are you living in the morning? I, I don't dude? watch that. Oh, one of them. People were going on about the but no, 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 not <laughs> one of them. I'm busy. But people were going on about the bodyguard, and I was like, going, "Fucking hell!" I mean, I liked it back in the '90s, <laughs> but I can't believe all these people have rediscovered it. <laughs> that was my first reaction too. The affair is set in um, Montauk and sort of upstate New York, and it's all about people, a group of people having various affairs. Um, but the first season uh, was pr- the first season was pretty good. Second season got a bit nutty. I think yeah, they're kind of pushing it a bit here. F- by the third season, it was just this is literally a dynasty now. We're going <laughs> mental. We're making it up as we go along. We're jumping the shark in every episode. And uh, yeah, so it's a hate watch now. Okay, we're going to do the game now, and okay, this is the game, uh, better or worse, where you well, you just have to say whether the next person is better or worse than the person before it. Oh, I like it. Radio 1 DJ Mike Reed. Is he better or worse than EastEnders uh, Mike Reed? It was. He is worse. He is worse. worse. Michael Burke. Is he better or worse than EastEnders Mike Reed? Worse. Worse, yeah. Worse, yeah. Frank Bruno. Better or worse than Michael Burke? Worse. worse. Oh, no, sorry. Better. I thought you I say better, yeah, sorry. Mike Reed, you're going to say Mike Reed? Yeah. yeah. Is Jeremy Clarkson better or worse than Frank Bruno? Worse. Worse. Yeah. Worse. Is Craig Charles better or worse than Jeremy Clarkson? Craig Charles. Better. Better. Ray Davies from The Kinks is better or worse than Craig Charles? Worse. Better. 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 <laughs> For his work or his... In general, come know. on. I don't really hang out with him that often. No. I've got to get the work to go on here. Is Noel Gallagher better or worse than Ray Davies? Worse. Worse. Ooh. Correct. Is Paul Daniels better or worse than Noel Gallagher? Better. <laughs> <laughs> better, yeah. Okay, better, yeah. Um, is Dolly Parton better or worse than Paul Daniels? Better. Better, yeah. Better. That's it. That's the game. How many? What's the score, Natalie? Ten? 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 No one gets ten. ten. No one's got ten ever. <laughs> Fucking hell. He's absolutely Fucking smashed hell. it. I mean, um, there what, was am I, what am I taking home with me? Uh, um, you get this pen lid. You can um, take that computer uh, if you like. Um, it's not really our responsibility. Fucking hell, a ten. Wow, a ten. I mean, that's amazing. This is, oh. Trumpets. We haven't got a ten. We've n- no one's We've had a ten. We've never had a ten. This is amazing. Oh, and it's not, it wasn't even that hard. It's just common sense, isn't I it? I guess. I guess it's just common sense. Answer, I'm surprised guys. at how many people get them wrong, though. Um, well, I think we'll, what we'll do is we'll celebrate uh, by uh, playing uh, the best also, song that we've got. Kill 'em all, kill 'em all is out kill now. Kill is out today, in the shops out this week and all good bookstores and bad ones. And um, bad ones, yeah. We don't care. Cool. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, having guys. God, you got a ten. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes.